0: hands together, fingers to fingers, palm to palm. After a deep breath, he drew them apart, creating a small flickering fire in the empty space. It hovered in the air, the size and gentleness of a candle flame. His voice lost its cantankerous edge. Focus your attention on this
1: single flame, he said. It is one flame, and it is many. It changes with every moment.
0: Kyoshi relaxed into the shape of her guide's words. No fire
1: is ever the same fire,
0: Nyahitha said. No avatar
1: is ever the same person. You and the flame change with every moment every generation. You are one flame, and you
0: are many. The sounds pouring forth from Nyahitha turned into echoes of themselves, an overtone, a reverberation. They lost their meaning and found
1: their weight. One and many. You are the flame. One out of many. One and the many. The
0: clouds picked up speed. The trees whispered in her ears. The stars winked, yawned, and turned in for the night. Nyahitha's voice became her own. She was repeating after him, unbidden, and crowds of herself shouted back in response, a swearing-in ceremony, where she was the leader and follower at once,
2: and then
0: the message the ice of Agnakala was so clear and pure, Kiyoshi instinctively rubbed her arms to warm them. Despite the sudden shift, the yanking of her mind across the world. She knew exactly where she was, and what she was looking at. She had the certainty of being here before. Kuruk sat at a great feast, long tables of ice laid out with raw and roasted meats, choice slivers of fish. To him and the rest of his kinsmen, the glacial hall was warm and bright as could be with the heat from dozens of blubber lamps and they laughed at the shivering foreign dignitaries in red furs and green coats who tried to raise their cups with their thick mittens for toasts. Over the course of the night, he pried at his elders, asking them, how did you know? What were the signs? He hadn't ever bent the other elements until they told him to try, confident in his success. Weeks ago, He'd been astonished when the glowing crystal they gave him rose into the air under his command. The sages of the Northern Water Tribe only gave him mischievous grins in response and assured him the unrevealed procedure had gone flawlessly. An auspicious sign for his era. Yang Chen's successor would be worthy of her legacy, and her peace would continue for a hundred generations. Kuruk gave up, smiled, and nodded. Though tonight was meant to be a celebration, everyone else's absolute certainty in him kept the joy from fully reaching his heart. Kiyoshi was watching a memory of her past life. She stared at a young Kurok from every angle at once, recognizing what was going through his mind with each twitch of his handsome face. Kurok, she tried shouting, to no effect. Her voice left her body, but there was no round trip, no echo. These were images, not people who could hear her and talk back. She was imprisoned, an audience in someone else's performance, forced to watch a play she had no chance of altering. Earthbending came so easy for him, too easy. The rocks danced at his command, but his form was improper. His wizened master from Ba Sing Se grunted. Too loose and wiggly, not enough stamping around. He wasn't adopting the attitude of an earthbender. Kuruk struggled with why the influence of his waterbending style was considered a detriment to the other forms of bending. The elements, they were all connected, One flowed into the next, sharing the same energy. He wished his older teachers could see that. To be of one mind instead of four, wasn't that the strength of the avatar? To constantly switch your identity back and forth? Waterbender, earthbender, waterbender, firebender, airbender? The strain would tear you apart. Surprisingly, the only person who agreed with him was a younger member of the Earth Kingdom delegation, some prissy kid from the Ganjin tribe. Despite the difference in their personalities, Koruk began to hang out with Genju more and more. It was clear the uptight boy needed a friend, and the avatar needed one too. He had plenty of people who liked him, but that wasn't the same thing as true friendship. It took a surprisingly long time for the two of them to sit down at a pie show table together. By the time the first game concluded, Kuruk's bond with Genju was absolute. The two of them put on their masks and suffered through the lecturing of their elders all the way through his mastery of fire and air. Best to simply comply than fight tradition along every single front. He pretended to be a model student in front of his teachers, Held his tongue on corrections he could have made to their forms. He even invented a technique that could have earned him arrows. A way to create a cushion of air under a heavy object, so it could be slid and moved over a floor with ease. A perfect way to arrange all those statues they had lying around the air temples. The people who knew Kuruk as a child would have been surprised at his good behavior. There was a reason for it, though a reward that lay at the end of the elemental cycle. A sky bison. You could have all sorts of adventures once you had a flying mount at your disposal. The world opened up, unconstrained by distance. That was how one of the junior monks of the Southern Air Temple caught him and Genju sneaking into the pen, hoping to experiment with a joy- and and pinned them to the wall with a blast of air that rippled their cheeks for minutes on end. Genju's hair stuck up like cactus thorns as the two of them knelt in front of the abbot of the temple and Kuruk's elders, trembling at what punishments they might receive. Idiots, they were told. Every avatar normally did a bit of independent traveling. They could have simply waited for their chance. Now, on their first trip, They were going to get chaperoned into oblivion. The monk who had roughed them up so badly was assigned as a companion to the avatar, despite his protests that he wanted nothing to do with the two bison thieves. They were shocked to learn he was the same age as them, his hulking size and enviable beard making him seem older. It was a good punishment. The avatar had this Kelsong fellow pegged for a no-fun grump no kiyoshi thrashed back and forth unable to break free no she had weathered the nausea of having to look at a younger version of jenju smile and enjoy himself she'd swallowed her hate by reminding herself the man was dead but seeing Kelsung again was too much she couldn't warn him of the monster sliding into his life in the disguise of a friend She couldn't change his fate. She was watching a wave crash inexorably against the shore, where it would break up and dissipate, irrecoverable. The last member of their group would be an adult. The three of them would be accompanied by one of the strictest, harshest senior teachers at the Royal Academy, a Naka man. The most powerful clan heads in the Fire Nation thought twice about trifling with a Seinaka. But as fate would have it, the man got sick. He sent a younger relative in his stead, assuring them the arrangement would be only temporary. Kurok knew he had to pull every string he could to make it permanent once he saw Heyran. He was convinced the spirits had given him a vision that day in First Lord's Harbor. The girl who arrived was a walking dream of night black hair and fierce lips and eyes that cut like knives. He had to ask quickly. He had to make her feelings clear while his heart pounded in his chest like a battle drum giving him the courage to approach someone so beautiful. He turned on his charm a weapon that had never failed him in the past. It took less than a minute for Haydon to coldly proclaim she wasn't interested in a relationship with the Avatar. Genju and Kelsong bonded for the first time over their mutual friend's misery, slapping each other's backs and laughing at how brutally he'd been shot down. But while the two of them had their fun, they'd missed Haydon giving Kuruk a slow blink, a smirk, and a little comment that romance was forbidden while on duty. Finally, world travel on a bison. As the breeze ruffled their hair, the sun warm on their skin, Kurok surprised his companions by asking for more bending training. Why, they asked. They were young, not the established experts in their disciplines. And Kurok was a bending prodigy, Already a master of all four elements, what need did he have for further practice? He explained that the distinction between the best Paisho grandmasters and those journeymen who were only mediocre was that the true geniuses simply played more games than their lower-ranked counterparts did. They never stopped learning. Genju, Kelsung, Heiran, they could make the avatar better. They could make each other better. Constant challenge was the key to growth. And so they practiced along the stops of their journeys. They practiced with each other, identifying and correcting and destroying each other's habits, until it felt like the four of them could speak without speaking, their spirits merging into a single pool. Kuruk knew his companions had the potential for greatness, unorthodoxy far beyond what their elders expected or even wanted of them. Kelsung confirmed it one night when he admitted he'd visited the spirit world unintentionally. His descriptions of colorful, translucent creatures, talking plants, shifting landscapes, had confused and upset the older monks who thought of the realm outside the physical as an austere place of blankness mirroring the detachment of the visitor. That was exactly it, Kuruk said. The instant the facts disagreed with their preconceived notions, people lost their minds. That settled it. Kelsang was going to guide the avatar to the spirit world. The monk agreed readily, eager for someone to share in the wonders he'd seen, rather than ridicule him for it. They picked a meadow in the Earth Kingdom near Yaoping, where it was said Yang Chen liked to practice using the avatar state to power her airbending. Kelsong and Kuruk sat on the grass, facing each other. Though the exercise had been his idea, Kuruk didn't still himself into meditation right away. He took a moment to watch Kelsong's breathing rustle the coarse hairs of his mustache. He felt Genju and Heiran's eyes on his back, Their gazes filled with warmth. His friends. He loved them so much. Life was good. It was simply good. And the world was a wonderful place. Kiyoshi's nails were wet. She'd broken the skin of her palm. Blood trickled down her fingers. She could still see Kelsong's face. She'd seen the man who'd saved her life, who'd raised her. She'd seen her father's face. Kuruk had gotten to spend time, so much time with him. Her eyes suddenly hurt. They stung from the light of dawn. Nyahitha was sitting with his back to the east, so the rising sun streamed over his shoulders. He looked at her with awe and confusion.
1: Your spirit left your body,
0: he said. If she didn't know better, she would have sworn there was
1: admiration in his voice. I let the flame go after the first ten minutes, once it was clear you didn't need it. I've never seen anyone get the hang of journeying so quickly. Was Kurok there? Did he tell you about Father Glowworm?
0: I didn't find Kuruk. Kiyoshi sounded like she'd been strangled. Her words didn't belong to her. Only his memories, and they, they weren't the ones I was looking for. The visions had been torture. Seeing Kelsang laugh and throw his arm over the shoulder of the man who would one day slice his throat open and leave him to bleed out on a mountain watching Heiron in her prime, knowing she would be robbed of her strength and her honor. They had all started out as such good friends. And yet Kuruk had let the people who loved him most drift away like chaff in the wind, down the paths to ruination. He should have done more for them. He should have fought harder to keep them together. I didn't learn anything, Kyoshi choked out. Only how much easier his life was than mine. Nyahitha looked at Kiyoshi sadly. Then he snorted, clearing the contents of his nose into his throat. All right, pack it up. We're done here. Fine by her. Is there another technique we can try? Maybe a different location?
1: We could, but I don't think you'll do any better than you did just now. This is your limit.
0: Nyohitha rose to his feet and dusted himself off.
1: You might be good at meditation, but you will never talk to Kuruk or any of your other predecessors in the Avatar cycle if you cling to your resentments this hard. Kuruk's flaws aren't keeping you from what you want. Yours are. You'll have to find another way to rescue your boy from Father Glowworm's clutches. In a fury, Kiyoshi crossed
0: the distance and grabbed Nyahasa by the front of his robes. He stared up at her calmly, as if he completely expected the threatening gesture. He had seen into her thoughts and found her wanting. She let
1: go as sharply as she could. Let me share with you some advice, The wisdom of my years, Nyohitha said,
0: straightening the rumple she'd given him.
1: You can have your past or you can have your future, not both. We can try again once you understand this.
0: Deciding his future lay back in town, he began the trek down the mountain. Kiyoshi watched her erstwhile guide walk away feeling as powerless as she ever had. Coming here had been a mistake. She should never have believed Kurok could give her answers. There was nothing else she could do right now but follow in Yahitha's wake, bitterness welling in her throat. They hadn't gone far when the sage, perhaps sensing she was on the verge of tears, spoke up.
1: I wasn't lying when I said you had the potential
0: for great Spiritual discipline, he said as he continued picking his way through the narrow path. You must have had a good
1: teacher showing you the fundamentals.
0: His pity was worse than his antagonism. You're not the first old man I've meditated with, if that's what you mean. She'd learned at the feet of a supposed immortal. It would have reflected poorly on her if she hadn't picked up a trick or two about the inner mind. Nyahitha shrugged.
1: Whoever it was has my regards. I could feel the veil between worlds thinning around your shoulders, avatar. The spirits of the islands came through and spoke to you
0: tonight. It's just a matter if you can decipher their hidden messages. Dawn breaking further put the rugged handsomeness of the fire islands on full display. The sun gilded the fields below them, and from this high up, the disk of North Chungling looked like an artist's gentle stamp on a nature painting. But as the glare in her eyes lessened, restoring the farmed land to its natural colors, a jarring discrepancy arose. Kiyoshi stopped where she was, and pointed at the hillside melon yam field. Did the spirits do that? She asked. Because if they did, I think their message is pretty clear. The melon yam leaves created a dense blanket of vegetation over the soil. But many of the plants had in a single night, dried and turned sickly yellow in swathes that stood out clearly against their green surroundings. From this distance, the dying crops formed patterns that looked like giant brush strokes. And the perfectly legible characters they spelled out were Hail Fire Lord Chaijin.
2: Interlude.
0: Survival. Yun threw up his hands as Father Glowworm bore down on him. This is it, he thought. This is where it ends. The boy who'd turned out to be nothing would fittingly vanish without a trace. But his body was stronger than his will. Out of sheer memory and practice, the forms carved into his muscles and bones. His gesture of surrender turned into a sky-piercing fist, an uppercut. The earth, the earth that loved him when nothing else would. He should have known that even in his lowest moment, he would never be abandoned by his element. A focused blast of mud and loosened rocks lashed Father Glowworm across the iris. The spirit shrieked and halted its charge. Yun stared at his own hand in shock, as if this were the very first act of moving Earth he'd ever performed. Tears welled in his eyes, blurring his vision. Oh, look. He wiped his face with his arm and sniffed. I can bend here. The duel raged for three days and three nights, is how his fable would have gone if told by another. In truth, he didn't know how long he battled Father Glowworm. Time seemed to work differently here. At one point, He remembered crawling on his hands and knees for the edge of the swamp, willing to put his lips to the bottom of a puddle, needing to drink more than he wanted to defend himself. But tendrils of slime had blocked his path, forcing him to turn and continue to fight. It was no longer about predator and prey, but whose hatred and stubbornness would see them through. Yun had to strategize which parts of his body he could sacrifice, like he was one of the wound dummies he and Master Amok used to practice on. A twisted elbow was better than a broken rib. Bleeding from the head was fine, but he had to protect his arteries. Above all, he could not lose consciousness, whether to exhaustion or a knockout blow. And he gave as good as he got. He battered the spirit with columns of solid stone, sprayed it with clouds of pebbles, nearly caught it in a giant hand of mud. An observation throughout the fight gave him slivers of hope, peeking through like rays of sunshine. Every time he struck home and truly wounded the spirit, it shrunk in size, a marker of progress. So, Yun wheezed during a lull while bent at the waist and heaving for breath. How do I stack up against Kurok? His blood and sweat dripped off the tip of his nose, pattering and mingling on the ground. I have it on good authority. I'm his equal when it comes to earthbending. His enemy continued to flit through the trees, but at a slower, ragged pace. The spirit had lost control
1: over much of its slime. It had fewer weapons to work with. You presumptuous little stain. If Avatar Kuruk hadn't weakened me all those years ago, I would have finished you in an instant. And yet here I
0: am, Yun screamed, wasting precious air, agonizing his own torn muscles. How inconvenient for you. Father Glowworm chuckled, knowing Yun could have been addressing someone else. Yes, the spirit said, considering his words.
1: You are more trouble than you're worth. There are easier meals to be had. It
0: gapped itself between two slender trunks, looking like a vertical squint of contemplation. Father Glowworm had started the battle the size of a wagon wheel,
1: but was now no bigger than an overgrown calabash. What do you say to a truce of sorts? I have a proposition for you. After
0: earthbending and pie show, deal making was what Hune excelled at. He pressed a thumb to one nostril and expelled a clot of blood from the other.
1: I'm listening. I can grant you some of my power. You'd be able to create passage between the worlds of human and spirit. In return, you would bring people to me. Not many. I don't want to become well known. I could get back home. Sacrificing
0: innocence did not sit with Yun, but it was important to hear the other side's entire terms during a negotiation, no matter how outrageous.
1: What does it take for you to give me such power? Our forms would need to intertwine, but only briefly. It's a simple act, a physical one. You would possess me, pass through me? Call it whatever you wish, as long as we both let our guards down, long enough to merge together. The spirit turned
0: magnanimous with its explanation, revealing more than it felt was needed.
1: You might notice some changes to your physical nature as a result, but it's no issue. If anything, you'd become stronger.
0: You knew a double-edged statement when he heard one? But keeping his good looks was not a concern. He fought through the pain in his arm and held his hands up. No sudden earthbending moves. I accept. Father Glowworm relaxed its tendrils. A layer of slime blanketed the ground.
1: Come closer.
0: Yun approached slowly. Scattered teeth rolled under his feet and trails of mucus clung to his soles. Nestled in the fork of a tree, Father Glowworm pulsed with anticipation. The branches surrounding it looked like part of a face. During their fight, it had never left the partial cover of the grove. Yun remembered how the spirit had preferred to remain within the stone tunnel Genju had opened in the mountain back in Shishan. An unprotected eye needed a socket. A welcoming energy radiated from the spirit, promising terrible transformation. The liquid dissolution and rebirth of a larva wrapped in its cocoon. It had opened to him. It had made itself ready for its end of the bargain. So had Yun. He threw his hands apart, The entire floor of the grove followed them. The ground layer containing the roots of the trees washed to the left and right, dividing right down the middle in a line that ran under Father Glowworm. The spirit suddenly had its clothing and protection stripped away by the tidal act of earthbending. It fell to the new level of ground Yun created and howled in surprise. Yun nearly did the same. The Brute Force Act had taken every ounce of his power. Kiyoshi could have done it easily, but the effort of washing away the topsoil had almost killed him. He had one last move to make, hurling his arms back together in a hug almost he caught Father glowworm in the jaws of an earthen vice, crushed in his stony grip. The spirit shrank further,
1: wretched boy. The spirit wriggled with impotent fury. I offered you power, and you resort to tricks. Not even Kuruk would have disgraced himself in such an- Ah! Yun
0: closed his thumb and forefinger. The boulders squeezed closer together. Shut up about Kuruk. Under his unrelenting pressure, Father Glowworm had been crushed down to the volume of a sea prune.
1: Stop without merging with me. You can't return to your home. I know.
0: Yun reached out and plucked the shrunken eye from the rock. It was wet and sticky like a sea prune, too. It's just going to be on my terms, not yours. What are you doing? Father Glowworm shrieked in his fingers, no less loud for its diminished size. Exactly what you are going to do to me! Without giving it any further consideration, Yoon popped the eyeball into his mouth. The sphere burst between his teeth. The bitter taste of the jelly inside washed over his tongue and a scream rang through his limbs, vibrating his bones like the strings of an erhu. The sickly clouds overhead fled for the cover of the horizon. He could feel the trees hiding their faces in shame. He didn't need to be told by an older, wiser master to understand. Combining with an immortal being in such a sacrilegious way created a permanent hole in the weave. It was a crime against order. An abhorrent violation of spiritual balance. Yun swallowed his mouthful and let change overcome him. He'd never been a picky eater. Resignation. Kyoshi and Nyahitha ran down the mountain as fast as his old bones would let them which in his panic was surprisingly fast. The spirits speak in subtle ways, do they? She yelled at him. She skidded over a patch of wet rock, nearly turning her ankles. What she would have given for the hidden forces behind the
1: movement of the world to stay hidden in her life. This isn't a spiritual message. It's a declaration of war. If either the Sawan or the Kyoso see this, North Chungling will drown in blood.
0: He was right. Jay Jin had been working the angle of being favored by entities beyond the physical realm. The sudden, inexplicable appearance of this message overnight would infuriate Zoryu's supporters and embolden his own. If a single misplaced banner could cause a fight to break out, a provocation of this size could be the prelude to a full-blown riot. It didn't make sense why spirits would care which brother sat on the throne. Did Chajin's training at the High Temple earn him some kind of goodwill with the islands themselves? Had he struck some kind of supernatural bargain? Despite the vision she'd had, the foe she was trying to rescue Yun from, she couldn't bring herself to believe the spirits would scrawl someone's name into the landscape like a vandal. And it didn't seem like Nyahitha did either. It occurred to her she had no way of undoing the message. Not unless she was willing and capable of destroying the entire hillside or setting the last remaining crops of a hungry village ablaze. She could see Chae Jin's smug grin, taunting her as she ran. The avatar can't fight history. She and Nyahatha were only hurrying toward the inevitable. By the time they reached the village center, astonished people were already stumbling out of their homes to stare at the giant writing. Nyahatha came to a stop and doubled over his hands on his knees we're too late he said over his heaving gasps for breath inhaling so much gas could not have been good for his endurance find my friends and tell them what happened the avatar was going to be needed here in the middle of north chungling the sao and kyoso clansmen were beginning to gather in force from one side of the square, Sansher and a very large group of toughs filed in. These were battle-scarred men Kiyoshi hadn't seen before at the fair or around town. Based on the way they carried themselves, she guessed they were seasoned fighters and guardsmen that must have come from other settlements on Shuhan Island. After seeing Huazo arrive yesterday, Sansher had called for backup from his clan the Sawon contingent packed the opposite end, basking in what the dawn had brought. The men behind Huazo and Colin laughed and cheered for the ostensible will of the spirits. It was too early for anyone to have put on armor, so they were dressed in wide-sleeved cotton summer robes printed with bright red and white stone camellias. The disparity between the Sawon's crisp, boldly dyed fabrics and the faded, tattered rags of the Kyoso locals made the choice of clothing look more like mockery than fitting in. Sansher, Huazo called out. For a delicate-looking person, she had a powerful voice when she needed it. Look at what the spirits have wrought. Spirits nothing, Sansher screamed, his face as scarlet as Huazo's outer jacket. Mark my words, this is Sawan treachery and not else. His outrage couldn't hide the fact that he was speaking for the benefit of the villagers who weren't diehard Kyoso loyalists. He was deathly afraid of the stain this message would leave on his clan. Men who were fearful for their image tended to act rashly. And in this regard, Sansher was no different than the boy in Longkao who'd attacked Kyoshi with a rusty dao. At his signal, the Kyoso battle line began edging forward. Huazo wasn't phased. The smirk she shared with her niece said she wanted this clash just as much as Sansher. "'Why don't we ask the Avatar how to interpret these symbols? She's right over there. Avatar Kyoshi, you can read, can you not? How should we interpret this miracle? Do you think our dear departed Lord Cheiryu might be speaking to us from the great beyond?' Kiyoshi tried to come up with a relevant answer that would both make her sound like a spiritual authority and change the direction this encounter was heading. But there was nothing she could say as loudly as an entire hillside. She ran into the middle of the shrinking space between the two clans. Stand down, all of you, she shouted. Kurok's memories had been a stage play, but here she was the actor now, not the audience and a bad performance could lead to a national disaster. I want everyone to go back to their rooms immediately. Right, because there's nothing to see here, a Sawan man hooted. Get out of the way, Avatar, Sansher yelled. This isn't a foreigner's business. Insults and perfidy of this size need to be answered. Holy day or not. The taboo against Agni Kai's during the festival was working against her. Another time of the year, the clans could have satisfied their honor through the firebending duel. Without the release the ritual provided, the situation was dissolving into something more dangerous and unknowable. Huazo stood fast. Her men streamed past her like river water around a stone. Colin marched at their head, the older Sawan warriors confident in her as the point of their spear. Kiyoshi heard footsteps rushing at her from behind. It was Rangi. Without so much as a nod, her bodyguard stepped neatly in to cover her flank, fitting to the avatar as closely as a hilt to a blade. She looked haggard and exhausted, like she'd spent all night awake worrying about Kyoshi's spiritual trials. But she was here, thank the stars. Now, together, they stood a chance at keeping the peace. The two clans closed in, catching them between the jaws of a vice. Listen to the avatar, Rangi shouted at the Kyoso. As a member of the Fire Nation and a neutral clan, hopefully she could arbitrate successfully. Kyoshi is the highest ranking firebender present, peer to the crown, and the final word when it comes to the spirits. You are beholden to her as much as you would be to Sito himself. She turned to address the Sawan and her former classmate. Colin. Rangi pleaded quietly. Help us stop this. You don't need to bear your aunt's grudges for her. I'm begging you. Colin raised a hand, halting the Sawan advance. She came closer, alone. She paused in front of Kyoshi and Rangi and gave them a warm, thoughtful smile. Oh, Rangi, she said. My dear friend. She lowered her voice, so only Kyoshi and Rongi could hear. Colin's pleasant, pretty features twisted into a disdain so deep it cast grooves over her face. Of course the daughter of a shorn, honorless animal would resort to begging, she whispered, with the deliberate intent of an assassin. Rongi blinked. She nodded. Then, before Kyoshi could stop her, she struck Colin across the jaw. The Sawon had found their excuse in Rongi's attack. The Kyoso took it as an example to follow. All around Kyoshi, the rival clan members roared and charged each other. She was still trying to process what had just happened when a man slammed into her back. She whirled around and flung the offender to the side, bowling over two of his kinsmen. Or his enemies. Already, the lines had merged into a pitched brawl with no defined front. Kiyoso and Sawan fought each other tooth and nail, with everything short of drawn blades and bending. Kiyoshi spun on the balls of her feet and lunged, sending a blast of wind hurtling at the biggest clump of people she could pick out. It flattened them like wheat in a storm, but with the combatants already locked together, they simply continued their fight on the ground, grappling in the dust. Thrashing bodies piled up at her waist like snowdrifts, impeding her movements. She forced her way to the pocket of space that had formed around Rongi and Colin. Huazo had disappeared, leaving her niece to manage things. Rongi raised her hand to Kyoshi, a silent order not to interfere. Colin wiped the blood off her smirk. The blow had been hard, but she'd rolled with it, expecting and wanting it. <sighs> What do you say, she asked Rongi. After curfew rules, no burns or closed fists. I was thinking the same thing, Rongi replied. The two of them walked right up to each other. Instead of resorting to graceful punches and kicks in the long, far-reaching style Kiyoshi was accustomed to seeing from firebenders, they grabbed for the backs of each other's necks and fell into an exchange of brutal, vicious strikes with their knees and elbows. The first blast of heat made Kiyoshi think they'd broken the festival's prohibitions. But then she remembered skilled firebenders could do extreme damage from the concussive force of their bending alone. Each time Rongi and Colin rammed a knee into the other's ribs or aimed an elbow at their opponent's temple, they let out a shock wave that rattled Kiyoshi's teeth. There was no way they could keep this up. They absorbed each other's blows with their shins and forearms, their skin reddening from towing the line of open flame. Colin attempted to smash her forehead into Rangi's eye, and just barely missed, cutting a gash along the cheekbone. Rangi staggered away, her knees wobbling. Colin followed in pursuit, hungry to exploit her advantage. But she'd fallen into a trap. With the extra space, Rangi turned her back to Colin and leaped into the air, it was a move few others but Kyoshi would recognize jet stepping, but not the way Rongi had used it in Chameleon Bay. Flames shot out from only one of her feet, propelling her into a back flip, pinwheeling her around with extra speed and force. Her knee came crashing down on Colin's head like a sledgehammer. Colin was out before she hit the ground. She fell face first as limp as a wet rag. The whole fight had passed in seconds rangi breathing heavily from exertion and pain but somehow completely calm crawled on her knees over to Colin. without hesitation she turned the unconscious girl over and raised her fists to strike her helpless opponent again what are you doing kiyoshi screamed she grabbed at rangi and pulled her off Colin. i rangi struggled to find an answer Horror seized her as her mind finally caught up with her body. She stared at the roiling battle she'd sparked over the town square, and then at Colin, who wasn't moving at all. <sighs> I, <sighs> Kiyoshi, had seen Rangi start a fight once on a lay Thai platform, but it had been a calculated maneuver, not a complete breakdown. If the madness of family honor could make someone as disciplined as Rangi lose control, then there was no telling what would happen if this violence burst the bounds of North Chungling and Shuhan Island. Take her to Sifu Atuat, Kiyoshi ordered. Still in shock, Rangi laced her arms under Ko Lin's and slung the girl over her shoulders. She staggered through the melee, threading into the open spaces she could find kiyoshi had to trust in luck and whatever remained of clan honor that no one would strike them from behind she couldn't use earth in the frenzy not without risking serious injury to her targets she resorted to pulling kyoso and Sawan apart with her bare hands hurling opponents as far away from each other as she could sometimes she had to crack their skulls together first Pair by pair, she worked her way through the crowd, creating peace through brute force. Kiyoshi spotted Jinpa coming to her, quelling the violence in his own way. Many of the fighters simply stopped when they saw him, the grace of an air nomad enough to calm their tempers. The ones who didn't, he wedged apart with his staff, smacking them on the shins and hands like an angry school teacher until they let go of their enemies. Avatar! He yelled. Their combined efforts were working slowly, and she could hear him over the lessening din. Atuat's set up a field hospital in one of the restaurants. He pointed to one of the buildings closer to the Sawan side. Our inn didn't have enough space to hold the injured. Rangi's there right now. The village bystanders were already dragging the more badly beaten warriors in that direction kiyoshi was going to tell jinpa he'd done well that their whole team despite its many mistakes and humiliations and failures since coming to north chungling had done well but when she looked around and saw the brawl dying down to its embers there was no reassurance only the pounding thought in her head that everyone in the village was here watching the fight or participating in the fight or recovering from the fight a deep, queasy sickness rippled through her core. Where's hey run she said. Who's with her? She's still back in our inn, by herself. jin realized it, too, and swore a curse unbecoming of his people. This whole showdown, a more perfect diversion could not have been designed. After all, why would Yun switch tactics if she kept falling for them? kiyoshi barreled straight for the inn she hadn't slept in yet knocking men down trampling them in her haste jinpa fell behind struck in the neck and knocked to the ground by an errant Sawan elbow there was no time to wait for him to rise to his feet and shake it off she had to get to hayran the street she was trying to reach lay several blocks away from the square and as she gained distance from the noise a ghostly silence fell over her like a cloak Her own footsteps and ragged breathing were louder than the clash of knuckles on bone she'd been listening to until now. She found the corner where the man from yesterday had nearly caved in his nephew's head and went inside the inn. Inside, the common room was warm, cheery, and well-lit. This establishment was deep in the Kyoso side of town, so cushions and throw rugs adorned with the winged peony lay over every surface that would hold them. A pie show board made of weathered wood had been set up in the middle of the floor. On one side sat Haydon, the other, Yun. Don't move, Kyoshi, Yun said. She's in grave danger right now. His eyes stayed on the board, examining the game that lay in its middle stages. He'd been forcing Rongi's mother to play. Instead of his Earth Kingdom clothes, Yun wore pilfered sawwon robes, a stone camellia emblazoned on his shoulder. He'd snuck through the chaos outside by blending in. No bending tricks, just the skills of an infiltrator. His learning made possible by the woman who sat across from him. Kiyoshi, remember what I told you. Haydon spoke with the same calm determination she had before cutting her hair and letting go of her honor. Now she was ready to give what little she had left. Remember what's important. You won't get a better opportunity than this. Yun placed a tile with finality, making the sharp click against the board that signaled the pieces had been carved from high-quality stone.
1: My victory
0: in 18 moves, Sifu, he said. No need to continue. It's over. Haydon bobbed her head in agreement. The shou tiles flew from the board into Yun's hand, following his motions. In an instant, they merged and reformed into a long, thin spike that he pointed at the base of Heiran's neck. Kiyoshi screamed and threw her hands up, pushing against the dagger with her earth bending. But Yun maintained his grip on the stone. His bending opposed hers, the same way she and Genju had warred against each other in the stone tea house of Chin Chow. Only right here and right now. Yun was stronger than Jenju. Despite Kiyoshi's resistance the entire way, he sank the dagger into Haidon's throat. Weakness Over the sound of the avatar shrieking, Yun and Haidon stared at each other. He held on to the stone spike as if he wanted to maintain a physical connection to her death the same way he had embraced Genju while killing him. He gave her a parting smile. But Hadon wasn't ready to say farewell just yet. Her bronze eyes flared with clarity and purpose. As blood welled from her wound, she grabbed Yun by the wrist. She choked involuntarily, her back spasming, and pulled him closer. The dagger plunged deeper into her body. Yun frowned, not expecting this. He tried to pull his hand away, but couldn't. Heidan's final muster of strength had turned her into iron. Scarlet trails poured from her lips, but she never took her eyes off her former student. Heidan raised a hand, and with an effort Kiyoshi could see was killing her just as much as the blood filling her lungs, she summoned a ball of flame. The blaze in her grasp made her look like a fire lord captured in portrait, unconquered to the end. She thrust her palm into Yun. He managed to break free and twist to the side right before the fire punched into his torso. His shoulder still got caught in the flames, and he hissed in pain, shoving hair onto the floor, the motion withdrawing the dagger with a sickening wet sound. He ran up the stairs, leading from the common room to the upper level of the inn, clutching his burned arm. Kiyoshi couldn't stop him. The mission was forgotten, the plan was nothing. She had to help Rangi's mother. She dashed to Heron's side and tried to wrap her mind around the grievous wound to figure out her next action. Hayron's fading expression was one of fury, reserved for the avatar alone. Go after him, she gurgled at Kiyoshi through her own blood. Yun had opted for a second story escape, and he was wounded. Kiyoshi could have caught up to him with dust-stepping, her secret advantage from the flying opera company that allowed her to speed along rooftops. But to do so would have meant letting Heiran bleed out. It would have meant Rongi losing her mother again. She bunched up her sleeves and clamped them to the tunnel in Haydon's throat. Blood kept slipping through her fingers, lessening to give her hope, then pouring out harder in waves. She realized it was the pattern of a heartbeat. She had no time to lose. She picked Haydon's upper body off the floor in preparation for moving her. No, the headmistress sputtered. Kiyoshi! There was a final burst of indignation in the headmistress's eyes, outrage at the weakness of the avatar, before they closed. Kiyoshi had thrown away her chance to fulfill her duty. She couldn't do what needed to be done. There would be consequences for choosing her personal attachments over all else in the long run. But right now, she had to hold on to Rangi's mother as tightly as she could. She lifted Haydon and ran out the door in the opposite direction Yun had gone. They needed a miracle, one who was currently on the other side of town. Kiyoshi sat inside the coral urchin noodle shop with Nyahitha and Jinpa. The restaurant had been closed for the holiday, so it was dark, and the stoves were cold. Long wooden tables took up most of the floor space. They'd paid the owner handsomely to take over his apartments upstairs as well, where Atuat worked on Haidan, Rangi by their side. Kiyoshi looked around the dark, knotted table at Jinpa and Yahitha, the arrowless airbender and the mock fire sage. Under normal circumstances, these two men would have been her spiritual advisors. What a trio they made. The fighting seems to have paused, Jinpa said. He'd been searching for something positive to say for a while. Only for the moment,
1: Nyahitha said. There's too many injured on both sides. Even worse, a few of the younger, stupider fighters met outside the town square and broke the taboo, unharmful firebending during the holiday. The Wan and the Kyoso will lick their wounds for a bit. And then the conflict will spill the borders of North Ling. Each of the clans thinks they have just cause to attack the other now. There's nothing we can do, Jinpa asked. This is what the beginnings of wars in the Fire Nation look like, Nyahitha said. If Agni Kai's and Avatar mediations didn't work in the past, I don't know how they'll work now.
0: Kiyoshi rested her forehead against her knuckles and stared at the whirling patterns in the wood grain. The situation between the rival clans had been precarious already, but her decision to come to North Chungling had pushed the country over the edge. She was to blame for whatever happened next and she had squandered the chance Haedon had given her to take Yun down. She'd violated her promise to Rongi to keep her mother from harm. She couldn't simply fail along one path like most people. She had to be torn apart by her failures in every direction. How much time do you think we have before fighting begins in earnest? She asked. A few days, Nyahitha said. If you have a plan... It had better be simple and quick. She had no plan. She had nothing. Atuat came down the stairs, wiping her hands with the clean towel. Thankfully, there was no blood on it. She's absolutely livid with you, the doctor said to Kiyoshi. Which one? Both. Atwat motioned with her thumb up the stairs, where mother and daughter waited. I would not want to be you right now. There was nowhere left to show any courage but here, her reckoning. Kiyoshi accepted the pitying looks of Jinpa and Nyahitha, and went to go see Rangi and Heiran. She could tell the room was hotter before she entered it, Kiyoshi ducked inside the restaurant's sleeping quarters and saw Heiron propped up on a small bed, a thick layer of bandages swaddling her neck. She was pale from blood loss, which only offset the anger shooting from her eyes. On a table beside her was a piece of slate and several lumps of chalk, taken from the order boards from the restaurant downstairs, She must have been using it to communicate with Atwat and Rongi, unable to talk from her injury. Rongi stood at the foot of the bed. So stock still, Kyoshi wondered how much Heiran had revealed to her about the conversation they'd had by themselves in the palace stables, about the tactic of luring Yun out in the open. You used my mother as bait, Rongi hissed. Apparently, everything. I didn't agree to the plan, Kiyoshi said weakly. Right, you just went along. Neutral Jing, huh? You kept quiet, and you didn't tell me she meant to sacrifice herself. Would you have mentioned it over her corpse? Would you have told me then? She wasn't describing the truth of Kiyoshi's thoughts. But thoughts didn't matter. Only actions and their outcomes. Rongi, please, I'm sorry. Don't apologize to me, Rongi said. There's no need, because from this point on, I am nothing to you. Do you hear me, Avatar Kiyoshi? Nothing. She brushed past Kiyoshi and ran down the stairs. Kiyoshi barely saw her leave. She was too stuck on what Rongi had called her. She couldn't remember Rongi addressing her as Avatar Kiyoshi during the entire time they'd known each other. Not in Yokoya, not in Chameleon Bay, not in Hujang or Zigan. Hearing those words from her lips was like a blade coming down between them, cold and sharp
2: and final.
0: Hiyoshi's body began to heave. She took great, dry gulps, her insides twisting. Ever since Genju had taken Rongi, she'd been so fixated on what outside dangers might separate them. She'd never thought about losing her by saying the wrong thing or being silent at the wrong time. She couldn't breathe. She didn't want to. This wasn't a future she could face. She was imprisoned again, like she'd been in Kurok's memories, forced to watch proceedings that she couldn't bear to witness. There was a precise little flick against Kiyoshi's forehead. Something white and powdery fell to the floor. Heidan had thrown a piece of chalk at her. The headmistress held up her slate and tapped its surface, showing Kiyoshi what she'd written. Stop panicking, it said. She's not leaving you. But she said- Kiyoshi was a blubbering mess, a wreck threatening to spill its contents into the sea. Heiran rolled her eyes, rubbed the slate clean, and wrote more on it with a fresh piece of chalk. Her strokes were so fast and efficient, she could have outpaced some speakers. She was a career teacher, after all. She says a lot of things. Yes, she's angry with you. It doesn't mean she'll walk away forever. Rangi had just walked away while making it sound like forever. How do you know? Rub, scrape. She's my daughter. You think you know her so well? I've known her since she was born. Haydon turned the board over to use the back. Eventually, she'll come back with some sign she still cares. It usually takes her a week to forgive me. Give it time. Kiyoshi wiped her face, sniffling like a child. It wasn't easy to recover from such a blow. What if Haydon was wrong? The headmistress wasn't going to give her time to ponder the issue. Yoon. I searched the town with the help of some of the more reasonable locals. He's gone. He could be anywhere on Shu Han Island, or he may have escaped by sea. You missed your opportunity. Haydon was less angry and judgmental this time. She was simply stating the facts. I couldn't leave you to die. For Rongi's sake, I couldn't. Haydon sighed, wheezing through her nose. The exhalation aggravated her wound, and she coughed pink spittle. Kiyoshi moved toward her, but she put her hand up to say she was fine. She resumed writing, the chalk dust thick
1: on the slate by now. He's not the only thing driving us to war anymore. The Sao Won and the Kyoso will use today
0: as a just cause to fight. They'll both say they were defending their honor. Kiyoshi stared at the strokes of chalk, not out of a lack of understanding, but because the characters spurred a recollection in her. She had to dig for it, feel it brush against her fingers before she could grasp the idea. To help the process along, she reached out with her earth bending, applying the gentlest of force against Hadon's board. At the touch of her bending, the mineral chalk swept clean off the slate. With Kiyoshi's level of control, that was the best she could manage. Even with her fans, she'd never had the fine tuning to be able to create words in earth. But she knew someone who could do just that. Yun is working on behalf of the Sawan, Kiyoshi said. They've been abetting him in the Fire Nation in return for his service. on frowned. What makes you say that? She wrote on her newly cleaned slate. Everything he's done has strengthened the Sawan's position and weakened Zoryu's. He humiliated the Fire Lord at the party, he created the message in the hillside. How could she have not realized this earlier? Yun may have been trained as a killer, but his specialty was cutting deals, making sure both parties got what they wanted. The Samhwan would shelter him as he worked toward his revenge, and he would tilt the Fire Nation's politics in their favor by sowing chaos. I don't follow you on the crop writing, but if it turned out you were correct, then... Heidon ran out of room on the slate board and tossed it to the side. She shifted in her bed so she could start writing on the wall. Che Jin and Hua Zou have been acting dishonorably this whole time. A link between the Sawon and Yun would turn them from a clan striving for the throne into a conspiracy of traitors. They'd have to submit to justice if they were found out. The other clans respect strength and cunning, but they couldn't possibly forgive inviting a foreign attack on the Fire Nation. Kiyoshi looked at Heiran's cropped hair with new admiration for the woman's sacrifice and iron composure under Hwazo's insulting touch. If honor was the reason quoted for bloodshed, conflict could be avoided by stripping it away entirely. Right now, it's only a hunch, Kiyoshi said. I have to follow up on a few things to confirm it. She turned to leave, but her path was blocked by Rangi storming back into the room. Rangi glowered viciously at Kiyoshi and pushed a steaming hot bowl into her hands. It was filled with plain yellow noodles. You haven't eaten since yesterday afternoon, she screamed. She hurled a pair of chopsticks on the floor and left as abruptly as she'd entered. Kiyoshi stared at the bowl. There hadn't been any fuel in the kitchen, which meant Rongi must have cooked it with her own firebending. She looked up to see Heron with an expression that almost crossed the line into smugness. See, even faster than I thought. You mean everything to her, Kiyoshi. She was running her chalk down to the nub. My daughter loves you,
1: which means you are also my daughter. For better or worse, you are a part of our family.
0: Haydon smiled. Now go on before your food gets cold. You need your strength. Kiyoshi bent her trembling knees and picked up the chopsticks, not caring they'd been on the floor. The noodles were unflavored, boiled from dry, and so overly alkaline they still smelled of lye. They were the best thing she'd ever tasted. Tears ran down Kiyoshi's face as she ate her meal. Haidon on watching to make
2: sure she finished.
0: Escalation. Bring us down, Kiyoshi said. It was just her and Pa right now. Where, he said. By the hail fire or the Lord Jin. Anywhere. Ying Yang swooped lower onto the diseased melon yam crop and landed by the left arm of the character for fire. The writing was detailed enough that once they dismounted, they could walk between the gaps of the strokes. Ying Yang immediately set to rooting through the ground with his nose. Boy, Jinpa scolded, don't, those aren't yours. Most people would have assumed the bison would go after the sweet tubers of the healthy plants. But the bison spent his time lapping at the soil itself, aiming his giant tongue under the withering yellowing melon yams. Hey, Jinpa tugged on his fur. You'll make yourself sick. Ying Yong's behavior added to Kyoshi's suspicion. She found a patch of earth he hadn't licked yet and crouched down. Above her head was a sickly plant. She made a face, knowing she was about to live up to an insult that foreigners sometimes hurled at Earth Kingdom natives. She picked up a clod of soil and popped it into her mouth. Kyoshi, are you eating dirt? Jinpa said. She wasn't eating it, was merely tasting it. A crude but effective technique poor farmers like the ones in Yokoya sometimes used to diagnose their field conditions. Kiyoshi turned around to face him and spat her mouthful of grit to the side. It's salty, she said. This field's been poisoned with salt. Kiyoshi wiped her tongue on her sleeve and spat again. Yun bent a message into the soil to kill the plants above it. Wadzo supplied the materials. She bought out the local salt making business just recently. It all added up. Yun and the Sawon were working together. They'd picked their avatar, and Zoryu had his. What do we do now? Jinpa asked. Take us back, Kiyoshi said. I want to talk to everyone before I do something rash. I don't think it's enough. Haydon wrote on her slate. Upon Kiyoshi's return to the restaurant, the headmistress had joined the rest of the group downstairs. Rangi protested her moving about for fear of worsening her injuries. The screaming and scribbling match reached such proportions that Haydon was forced to order Rangi to leave and cool off with a harshly written, Young lady. A chair lay shattered in splinters by the door as her daughter's final retort. It was Kiyoshi alone with Jinpa and the older folks.
1: I think you're right about Yun working with the Saiwan, Heidon clarified. But it won't hold up with the rest of the clans. Nyahatha concurred. Your evidence relies on an earthbending technique no one else has ever heard of before now.
0: Then I only have one option left, Kiyoshi said. I find the leaders of the Sawan and get a confession from them. A statement from the guilty party was as valid in the Fire Nation as it was in the Earth Kingdom. No one missed the implication. There was a chance Kiyoshi was going to have to confront the Sawan with more than just facts. It was good that Rangi wasn't here. She believed the Avatar had a duty to follow the path of righteousness. She had faith. The rest of the group, less so. Kiyoshi looked around the table at her new set of companions, gathered by chance instead of choice. They made a motley collection of representatives from every nation. She focused her attention on Jinpa. Heiran, Atuat, and Nyahitha had been weathered by life and its insults. But the air nomad was still young. His pacifistic beliefs should have prevented him from accompanying Kiyoshi where she was headed. She waited for some kind of gentle counter-argument for peace and neutrality from the monk. But it never came. Jinpa ran a finger over the restaurant's table, inspecting it for dust. The gesture aged him, made him look like he was an investor considering buying the whole establishment. Just tell me where to take you, Avatar, he said. What a crew they made. A disgraced firebender, a sage without sanctity, a doctor who let people die, and an air nomad involving himself with the dirty politics of the world. With Avatar Kiyoshi at the center. None of them were what they were supposed to be. The Flying Opera Company might have gotten along better with this group than she thought. Kiyoshi beckoned everyone to listen close. Here's what's going to happen, she said. The nearest viable port was south of the fairground beach, around a bend of the coast. The boardwalk had been optimistically filled with stalls for snack vendors and bauble sellers to ambush arriving tourists before they even got to North Chungling. Reef crabs scuttled freely over the jagged rocks. The birds that would have eaten them had too much refuse to gorge on. Kyoshi and Atuat got there at the break of dawn to wait for Huazo on the damp wooden pier. Kiyoshi had gotten the idea in her head that an extra waterbender might be helpful backup so near the ocean. But Hwazo arrived without her niece and only two guards. Her contingent had been left behind in town. It must have suited her to keep a force in Shu Hon to meet the coming Kyoso aggression while she made a discreet exit. Leaving so soon, Kiyoshi said. A single island-hopping ferry boat drifted nearby in the water, ready to launch. The festival of sea toes not over yet. Hwazo was surprised to see her, but as always, managed it well. This town has given me what I need. Kiyoshi did not have the patience to bandy in euphemisms anymore. Where is Yun, she snarled. Yoon. Is this the boy the Earth Kingdom thought was the avatar before you? The one who attacked the royal palace and humiliated Zoryu? Huazo's polite front had turned from annoying to nauseating. Earlier, Kiyoshi had gone over her plans with her group in a calm, rational manner, but coming face to face with one of the people keeping her from Yun was a fresh trial. She was too close to her end goal to remain composed. I know he's been working for you, Kiyoshi said. Tell me where he is. Wazo craned her neck forward so Kiyoshi could see the perfection of her lying face. I have no idea who this person is. I've never met him. Kiyoshi drew circles in the air with her wrists, flowing, summoning motions of energy. The crash of the surf hissed in her ears. Water was calmness and tranquility, but it was the rage of a storm as well. She flung her energies at the ship. The ropes mooring it to the dock snapped like threads. A wave as wide as a river carried the boat out to sea, lifting it higher. Once it reached a hundred yards out, the riptide Kyoshi created froze in a snap, leaving the ferry held in the air by talons of ice. Huazo's men jumped back and shouted in astonishment. Laws, fins, Atuat muttered upon seeing the avatar's full strength for the first time. You've got enough raw power to freeze a polar orca solid. Huazo bade her retainers to stand down as Kiyoshi came closer and loomed over her. She stared up in defiance. You have nothing, avatar. Try to intimidate me all you want. Hurt me even. You'd only be strengthening my clan's position in the coming war. There is nothing you can do to me to get what you want. In her own way, the woman was as fearless as Heiran. I had a feeling you might say that. You're coming with me to Capital Island, alone. The Sawan matriarch broke out into a smile, as if she'd been handed a gift. That's right, she said to her guards before they leaped on Kiyoshi with firebending. The avatar's taking me hostage on behalf of Zoryu. I'm about to be falsely imprisoned. Her men looked unsure. Send messages to the rest of the clan and our allies, Wazo said. Tell them what happened here. Don't start anything with the Kyoso until I'm freed from the injustice of Zoryu and his hired bandit, the Avatar. She gave Kiyoshi a wink that said, This is how you craft the image of events as they happen, girl. Hwazo took Kiyoshi by the elbow and led her ostensible captor off the dock. The two of them could have been a lady and her maid out for a morning stroll. Do you play paisho, my dear, she asked. Kiyoshi tensed so hard, Hwazo could feel it in her biceps. I take that as a no, Huazo said. I thought as much. You see, my dear, one of the first lessons a player learns is never to interrupt your opponent when she's in the middle of making a fatal mistake. By the time the three of them returned to the coral urchin, Jinpa had retrieved ying Yung and was perched on top of the bison's neck, finishing preparations for their flight. The great beast filled most of the alley next to the building. Haydon waited by the door. She'd removed some of the bandages from her neck, but was still clearly feeling the effects of her wound. Upon seeing her, Huazo burst out laughing. Oh this keeps getting more hilarious by the second. Her grin turned cold and wicked. You know what this means, Heran. The Avatars disgraced herself, and you've thrown your lot in with her. When my clan finally triumphs, there will be no mercy for the Senaka. Heron spoke the injury transforming her normally graceful voice into a terrible rattling whisper.
1: We have no need of mercy, only justice.
0: The dreadful sound, coupled with the raw determination in her voice, silenced Wazo for once. Kiyoshi took the matriarch of the Sawan clan by the waist, eliciting a yelp, and lifted her into the grasp of Jinpa, who swung her up into the saddle. Hwazo flumped into the corner like a bolt of cloth, her fine robes and layers of petticoats pooling around her. Kiyoshi faced Heiran one last time. What if she's right, she muttered. There was no way the Avatar's reputation would emerge from this affair unscathed. By doing this, I'm
1: ruining my own honor. Only because you understand the true meaning and value of the word, Hadon rasped. Honor cannot be coveted too dearly, young lady. Sometimes it must be laid down for the good of others.
0: As if to quell Kiyoshi's doubts, Rangi walked around the corner holding baskets of supplies. The plan had been to keep her away while the avatar took off with Huazo. But she'd come back too soon, perhaps unable to find what she needed in markets of the declining town. She dropped her burden as soon as she saw their hostage, rolls of gauze and bundles of medicinal herbs scattering at her feet. What is going on here? Rangi shouted as she ran up to Kiyoshi. Have you lost your mind? Kiyoshi took one of her fans out, as gently as she could. She earth-bent Rongi into the ground, halfway up to her shins. What in the name of... Kiyoshi, is this you? Rongi clawed at the ground around her legs, trying to uproot herself. Stop it. Let me out. There are places my daughter will never go, Haydon had once said. There were places Kiyoshi would never take Rongi. Just Honorable, kind Rongi, who believed in what the avatar stood for. Kiyoshi leaned over and kissed Rongi on the top of her head. Please forgive me, she whispered, before climbing into Ying-Yong's saddle. <sighs> Kiyoshi, Rongi screamed, trapped where she stood. Jinpa snapped the reins and Ying-Yong rose into the air. <sighs> Kiyoshi! Kiyoshi clenched her teeth and wished the bison could climb faster. She needed to be high in the sky where the air was thin, and she could no longer hear Rangi crying her name. The Companion I'm hungry, Huazo said. If Kiyoshi could keep only one lesson she'd learned in her 17 or so years of life- It was that your choice of traveling companions was the most important decision you could ever make. Forget the avatars roaming the world with their bending teachers. The avatars roamed the world with the few select people they didn't want to strangle with their bare hands mid-journey. For the last time, there's parched grain in the sack you've been using as a pillow, Kyoshi said. And nothing else? And nothing else. HwaZo made a noise with her teeth. She opened the bag and poured some toasted millet into her palm. Then she tossed it into her mouth, crunching the grain more noisily than Kyoshi expected from a refined noblewoman. Ryu and I used to fight like this when we traveled, she said. He loved the idea of being close to nature, so he always packed as little as possible on our trips. If he had his way, there would have been no guards at all in our procession. Just the two of us, and what we could carry, tromping through the wilderness of the islands. The thought of Lady Huazo and the deceased Fire Lord camping outdoors, like the Flying Opera Company and their meals of elephant rat, was so incongruous that Kiyoshi's curiosity got the better of her. You and he really used to rough it? Huazo shrugged. You look so skeptical. Any pastime feels like the most glorious adventure when you're young and in love. Fleeing into the mountains was how we escaped the pressures of the court. What happened? Huazo knew Kyoshi was pushing it and answered anyway. What happened was we were young and merely in love. What are those compared to the pressures of clan and country? Nothing. At some point, whether it was a suggestion planted in his head by his advisers or an idea he came up with on his lonesome, Lord Cheiryu became convinced he could do better than me. She picked a husk out of her teeth and flicked it to the side. It could have been about power, politics, Fortunes rise and fall quicker here in the Fire Nation than in the stagnant Earth Kingdom avatar. In those days, the Sawan were weak, and I wasn't well received in the capital as the Fire Lord's mistress. There are certain ways members of the royal family are supposed to meet their future partners, and falling in love as teenagers doesn't count. Hwazo lay back against the saddle edge and held out her hand. Water. Kiyoshi was so enthralled by the story that she forgot to snap at Hwazo for being such a demanding hostage. She handed over the water skin, and Hwazo swigged it until it was empty. The millet really dries out your mouth, she said. Anyway, where was I? Oh, yes. The worst moment of my life. Cheiryu's ministers, a lot of them being Senaka clan, mind you, arranged the whole thing like an assassination. It was at one of those blasted, wretched, miserable garden parties. Cheiryu had already been thinking about ending our relationship, but he wasn't sure about it. Not until his advisors trotted out Lady Sulan of the Kyoso clan before him. The woman Cheiryu married, Kyoshi thought, Zoryu's mother. I was watching his face when it happened, Wazo said. I saw the exact moment Cheiryu laid eyes on her, and thoughts of me vanished from his head. The pieces fell into place for the Fire Lord. He had the excuse, the permission to make the ultimate sacrifice, and let go
1: of his love for me. I saw how wide his grin grew when he realized he could pursue the lovely young Sulan and be completely blameless in the eyes of our country.
0: Wazo smiled with one corner of her mouth and frowned with the other. He could have fought in his heart a little more. If it was his inevitable and unfortunate duty to cut me loose, he could have done it a little more solemnly. Instead of wearing that big, stupid, dumbstruck face he used to reserve only for me. She remembered an important part of the story and giggled. It was an unfortunate time to be pregnant with his first son, you can imagine Che embarrassment when I told him. Kyoshi wondered if she ever phrased it like that in front of Che Jin, and what her son thought if she did. Parents had ways of offhandedly cutting their children. So you've been taking it out against the Kyoso ever since. What?
1: No! Wazo scoffed.
0: You make me sound so petty. I dedicated myself to growing the fortunes of the Sawon, because that's what clan leaders do. And I was one of the best in our history. You think the other nobles don't try to edge their rivals out, or dream of having their offspring sitting on the throne? Every single family of sufficient birth has wanted to own this country since Tars. Your precious Seinaka woman would go for it if they had the strength. Wazo seemed to enjoy how the avatar incorrectly dwelled on the level of personal grudges, like a child. I never hated little Sulan, she said. She was too pure for court. If you want to hear a story about what she was like, listen. She traced a character on the floor of the saddle with her finger. The elegance in her penmanship, clear to see, even without ink. She did it upside down, too, so Kiyoshi could read it right side up. An understated but extremely impressive feat. The character was Zo, sometimes pronounced So, and it meant ancestor. For generations, the character for Zo has been used for names by the Sawan, and only the Sawan, Wazo explained. But it's the same as the one in Zoryu. Cheiru gave another woman's child my family's character for his name. Kyoshi sucked in her breath sharply. See, Wazo said. Even you, a foreigner, understand. Agni Kai's have been fought to the death for lesser insults. But Cheiru did it because Sulan wanted to. And Sulan wanted to because she thought it sounded pretty. He bowed to her nonsensical whims, and in doing so, angered an entire clan. She threw her shoulders higher. Me, personally, I was less upset about the insult than I was shocked, completely staggered that Sulan didn't understand it would be a bad idea. How could the future Fire Lady be so naive? How much damage was she going to cause with her foolishness? Wazo tapped her chest with her hand, her fingers crooked like the claw of a raven eagle.
1: We could have had a Fire Lady who actually knew how to use power. Power. I could have brought success and prosperity to the rest
0: of the country, like I did for the Sao One. And I could have had a great mentor in you. Kiyoshi couldn't help but think about this future that had withered on the vine. One where she had no reason to come into conflict with Hwazo. The Avatar and the Fire Lady, working together as allies. Chajin is your second chance at the throne, she said. He's nothing more than your way of reclaiming what should have been. Chajin is my son, and I love him, Wazo snapped indignantly. But yes, him taking the crown from Sulan's progeny would rectify a few mistakes of the past. At the cost of plunging the nation into war, you can claim not to hate Zoryu and Sulan all you want, but your actions don't follow your words. The leader of the Sawan smirked. Maybe you're right. It's so hard to keep personal matters out of our duties, isn't it, Avatar? The mask slid back over Hua Zo's face, hiding the candor she shared so openly moments before. I still don't know anything about Yan, Or was it Yao? I can't remember. Thank you for making this easier, Kiyoshi thought, as Capital Island came into view. Take a left, she said to Jinpa. I'll need to guide you the rest of the way. They landed on a rocky coastline, the view of First Lord's Harbor blocked by jutting promontories. Here, the waters were too dangerous for boats to dock. Or even linger. Powerful waves slammed into the near vertical cliffs, creating a deafening hiss. The only sign of human interference was a small hut nestled into a crag. Kiyoshi had to rely on a faint memory of a written description to find it. I thought we were going to the palace, Wazo said. We will, Kiyoshi replied. Eventually. There were no stairs or pathways to the house from the cliffs above or the waters below. A visitor would need a bison or have to be an extremely skilled bender in order to reach it. Jinpa brought Ying Yang down as far as he could, but there wasn't enough space to land. Kiyoshi Earth bent a ramp so Hozo could disembark. Go inside, she said. Make yourself comfortable. There should be more preserved food and fresh water, but I doubt you'll need it. We'll be back in less than two hours. Wazo sniffed in confusion and disgust at the house. It was covered in a thick layer of seabird droppings. You're not going to guard me? Where could you go, Kyoshi said. Being ordered inside this strange, unexplained house that existed in defiance of logistics unsettled Wazo for the first time since Kyoshi had met the woman but she refused to show weakness. Well, it's not an Ember Island bungalow, but it'll do. She fought past her hesitation and marched across the bridge. Kiyoshi and Jinpa watched her proceed carefully inside, perhaps checking for traps. Once she disappeared from view, he turned to Kiyoshi. That was an incredible story she told you, he said. Are you two friends now? I don't think so. Good. It would be difficult if you suddenly became fond of Huazo. Again, he showed the lack of a typical airbender's scruples. By all rights, she should have had to lock him to the ground alongside Rangi. Instead, he was enabling her the same way the Sao Wan were doing for Yun. Jinpa, she said. How long have you been traveling with me as my secretary and advisor? He scratched the top of his head. He hadn't shaved in a while, and his hair was starting to grow back. Well, I don't remember the date we made it official, but I suppose you could start counting from when you first had to leave the Southern Air Temple to mop up the splinter fleets of the Fifth Nation before they could reform. Then we went to Misty Palms, and ran into that problem with the beetle-headed merchants and their mercenaries. By the time you'd destroyed the Emerald Claws, people knew they should go through me to talk to you. Kyoshi nodded. She could count each of those adventures through the scars on her body, up to and including the raid on Kao. Brutal business, all of it. And yet, not once have you ever advised me to follow the path of peace. Jinpo stuffed his tongue under his lower lip. He looked away from her. You've seen me take a lot of punishment, Kiyoshi said. But you've also seen me inflict a great deal of it. And you've said nothing. How odd for an air nomad. I don't believe that simple deference to the avatar is what's keeping you quiet as you watch me violate your spiritual values over and over again. She'd caught him out. She might not have had the specifics, but she'd caught him out just the same. It's as you suspect, Jinpa said. I'm an air nomad, but I'm also something else. I belong to another community. Your friends you play Show with. Yes, the senior members of the group, Agreed I should help you establish your avatarhood in whatever way I can even if your actions go against what I've been taught as an airbender. He rubbed the back of his head, uncomfortable with revealing so much.
1: Having two identities means I serve two different ideals, which is probably why I'm not very good at either.
0: Sometimes those beliefs come into conflict with each other. Kiyoshi was of Earth Kingdom and Air Nomad parentage. She was the bridge between spirits and humans, a public figure and a Daofei. Her own half-status made it easier to understand others who were torn in different directions. I know what Air Nomads believe, she said. What's the other ideal? The philosophies of beauty and truth. It doesn't sound so different from airbender teachings at first blush, but to uphold such values requires a deep attachment and love for the greater world that enlightened air nomads aren't supposed to have. Some of my friends in the other nations would argue that, on occasion, truth and beauty must be defended with ugliness. They would claim a gardener who nurtures a flower so others can enjoy it bloom for a few moments, must spend much time with their hands buried in dirt. Kiyoshi would have chosen a less pleasant word than dirt. What do you believe then? Jinpa smiled sadly.
1: I believe I have to make peace with my own choices just like everyone else.
0: The tint of pain in his expression reminded her too much of Kalsong for her to believe Jinpo was at complete peace with himself. Outsiders enviously and condescendingly assumed airbenders lived in a state of innocent bliss. But that didn't give the monks and nuns enough credit for their inner strength. From what Kyoshi knew, Belonging to the wandering nation meant a constant struggle with your own morals against the world's. She didn't ask him to name his group. She'd rather a secret society try to help her for once, instead of coming after her with hatchets. Perhaps after all of this is done, I can be less confrontational and start compromising more, Kiyoshi said. She could stand to make her long suffering secretary's life a little easier. He deserved it. Jinpa glanced at the house where Lady Huazo was resting inside. I think we're both compromised now. To the palace. To the palace.
2: The Edge.
0: You kidnapped the leader of the Sawan clan? Zoryu's cry of shock echoed through the war room. Luckily, the only ones to hear it were Kyoshi, Jinpa, and the multitude of carved dragons wrapped around the pillars and walls. She'd asked the Fire Lord to dismiss his retinue, and then asked him again to dismiss the unseen lurking guards, who had undoubtedly doubled in number since Yun's attack. She'd briefed him on everything that happened in North Chungling, but the details had only made Yu more upset. You were supposed to help me prevent a war, not create one from whole cloth. We are preventing a war. The Sawan have been working with Yun. Once we make the connection public, you can deal with them as honorless traitors. No amount of manipulating public opinion or court etiquette or claiming it's really the Kyoso's fault can excuse them. Kyoshi reiterated the plan. It wasn't very complicated. Get me, Cheijin, and I'll get you a confession. Zoryu's mouth flapped open and shut. Kyoshi knew what was happening. The time had come for the Fire Lord to make his move. And even in the face of his own destruction, he couldn't do it. Didn't want to do it. Whether it was the weakness he'd shown when it came to his brother, or a lack of resolve in general, he couldn't sign the picture that Kyoshi had sketched, inked, and colored in for him. She surged forward and grabbed Zoryu by the shoulders. Manhandling the Fire Lord was probably punishable by death, but right now, Kiyoshi could only see a scared young person whose weakness was going to get everyone killed. She saw herself, and she hated it. You have to be stronger, she said. She could have been talking into a mirror. We have to be stronger. Our opponents in this game are playing for blood, and they're willing to break every rule. We have to break a few as well. Kyoshi. If this doesn't work, I'll have only hastened my own demise. Zoryu might have had his political troubles, but he hadn't lost everything yet. He was still a relative newcomer to a life on the brink. If one path of a fork promised you oblivion, it didn't really matter what the other path held in store. There's a saying among the destitute of the Ba Sing Se lower ring," Kiyoshi said. The ones who are so poor that if they find a copper piece in the street, they take it straight to the gambling dens and the numbers rackets, because a single coin won't make a difference in their survival. You either accept the risk of winning or the guarantee of losing. She let the words sink in. Now can you get me changing? Yes or no? Zodio worked his jaw around nothing again, and she fought the urge to slap him. But like a newborn turtle duck taking its first waddling steps to the water, he nodded. I'll have to bring in a few people, and I don't think I can trust them all to keep their mouths shut. So you won't have much time before word leaks out. But I'll make it happen. Be quick about it. I'll wait in my quarters for your signal. She turned to leave the war room without waiting to be dismissed. Avatar, Zoryu said, calling her attention back. His eyes burned with more light than she'd seen from him yet. If the royal portrait artists wanted to capture Zoryu's likeness for the ages, they could do worse than choosing this moment. I may not be the strongest ruler yet, he said. He already sounded clearer and backed with purpose. But I would do anything for the sake of the Fire Nation. Please understand that. She gave him a nod. The gesture of two people about to take a plunge into uncharted depths together. I really
1: have to thank you, Avatar,
0: Chae Jin said, his words slightly muffled by the burlap sack covering his head. He sat across from Kyoshi in the back of Ying Yong's saddle. You've grown my legend in ways I couldn't dream of. Wrongfully accused, forced to bear the injustice of men while being blessed by the spirits? History will turn my reign into a song for the ages. Zoryu's agents had found Cheijin so willing to comply with his own abduction that they hadn't bothered to gag or restrain him. The nondescript men wearing the clothing of junior ministers told Kiyoshi they'd simply asked him to leave the tea house where they found him and get into their carriage. They passed through the winding streets of the capital, like a noble and a few of his household retainers on a joy ride to the isolated meadows surrounding the outskirts of the city. Only once, when they'd opened the door to the carriage and let Chae Jin step out, did they throw the bag over the top of his head, as she'd requested. And they did it so clumsily that Chai Jin had gotten a good long look at Kiyoshi and Jinpa waiting with yin Yang. He'd given her a knowing grin before his face disappeared under the hood. I do have one complaint, though, Chai Jin said, sniffing. What is that abominable smell? Seabird droppings, Kiyoshi said. Ah, uh, I knew we were near the ocean. It's hard to tell what direction we went in. I've never traveled by air before. Kyoshi yanked the hood off his head, which he could have done himself, but chose not to in his desire to fully embrace the role of suffering captive. Jinpo pulled his bison down, level with the platform the hut stood on. Lovely, Jin sneered. Is this the Avatar's private residence in the Fire Nation? In a way, Kyoshi said. It used to belong to Master Janju of the Earth Kingdom. Now I own it. She leaned closer to his ear. Your mother's inside. To Chajin, it was a sudden tangent, and he laughed. Very funny, Avatar. Do you and I have business here or not? Kiyoshi violently ripped away the foundations of the hut with earth bending. Planks and splinters flew into the air like they'd been caught in a tornado. Huazo, suddenly revealed, screamed in surprise. Mother Chae Jin tried to reach for her, but Kiyoshi hadn't made a ramp this time. The gap between Ying Yong's saddle and the stone platform was too far for him to leap across. They were, however, close enough for everyone to hear each other. What is the meaning of this? Huazo shouted. I told you I don't know where Yun is. So now you remember his name, Kiyoshi said. She slashed one of her hands at the cliffside. Cracks ran around the rock HwaZo stood on, puffing out thin lines of dust. The entire platform lurched, threatening to plunge into the sea. Che Jin threw out his arms in a panic, as if he could control the earth himself. No, stop. Kiyoshi, what are you doing? Jinpa shouted. I thought you were just going to scare them a little. The airbender's shock was real, and not an act put on to convince the Sao Wan. She hadn't told Jin how far she was truly willing to go. She didn't quite know herself. Where is Yun? Kiyoshi didn't care whether HwaZo or Chae Jin told her. One of them had to know. You've been working with him this whole time, in the palace and in North Chungling. Admit it, where is he? The stone supporting Huazo dropped another foot. Kiyoshi, that's enough, Jinpa said. He gathered the reins to fly them away. Don't, she ordered Jinpa. I might lose control over the stone. One wrong move would send Lady Huazo plummeting into the sea. We don't know where Yun is, Jin cried. We've never dealt with him. His denial sent Kiyoshi into a rage. With her other hand, she grabbed him by the throat and angled him over the saddle railing. Now, both of the saw one threatened to fall. Let my son go, you monster! HwaZo shrieked on her hands and knees. Viper! Animal! Kiyoshi would be those things if necessary. I'm only going to ask one more time, she said. And in her heart? She knew it was no exaggeration. She had lost her patience, her honor, her friend. She had reached her limits. She was done, finally done. And unless Huazo or Jin answered her, they would be too. Where is Yun? Kyoshi. She shook her head in confusion. She normally didn't hear Kurok's voice so clearly. His husky growl pierced through the roar of the waves, the whistling of the wind. Kiyoshi, this isn't who you are. Chae jin raised his tear-stained face and wailed in helplessness. It was the same cry the little girl in Longko had made. Watching her parents dragged into the street, Maybe Kiyoshi had cried like that once, as she watched a bison fly away from Yokoya, never to return. Sobbing, Huazo crawled to the edge of the cliff and reached for her son. It was a fruitless gesture, but she'd be that much closer to her child, whom she loved more than her own life. Kiyoshi finally saw the truth, bare and stripped open. They didn't know where Yun was. They hadn't been working with him. In her frenzy, she had nearly killed mother and son in front of each other. She tossed Chae Jin onto the platform beside his mother before she accidentally throttled him. She could hear Jenju laughing in her ear. Or maybe it was Kelsung weeping over the loss of his daughter, her betrayal of his example. She pulled out her fans, eliciting whimpers from Huozo and Che Jin. Another sharp crack of rock rang out. Instead of heralding a landslide, the entire crag they were on rose higher, riding the edge of the rock wall toward the sky. Without needing to be told, Jin Pa climbed Ying Yang in the air, keeping pace with Kyoshi's earth bending. The platform stopped at the top of the cliff leaving the Sao Wan level with a wind-scrubbed field of coarse grasses. Go, she ordered them. Go! They crawled away at first, not trusting the steadiness of the ground or her sudden change in disposition. Then, HwaZo and Che Jin began to believe they might yet survive. They picked themselves up and ran, the pounding of their feet clumsy and unpracticed. The flatness of the cliff tops meant Kiyoshi could see them go for as long as she wanted. Watching them take part in the most humbling, equalizing ritual, the flight for one's life, made them look vanquished and small. Kiyoshi turned around, unable to stomach the sight any longer. She teetered to the edge of the saddle, dropped to her knees, and wretched emptiness into the ocean. Kiyoshi! Jinpa dropped the reins and clambered into the saddle with her. He grabbed her by the shoulders, wondering if she was still maddened. Get a hold of yourself! She tried to apologize for risking so much on this desperate, ugly, vile gambit, and coming away empty-handed for being so completely and utterly wrong about the connection between Yoon and the Sao Wan, for almost making him complicit in her crime. But she was only capable of producing halting gasps. Seeing she was incoherent, Jinpa got back in the driver's position and flew them away, making a straight line for the capital. Kiyoshi refused to look over the rails below. If she did, she would see Huazo and Chin moving in the same direction. She'd forced them to their lowest state and terrified them down to their bones. If only that were the end, the conclusion of the Avatar's dealings with the Sawan. How convenient it would be if giving someone enough comeuppance silenced them for good. But eventually, they were going to make it back to their kinsmen and not long after the royal court itself. HwaZo and Cheijin would spread word of what happened. The story of their treatment by Zoryu and the Avatar would be used as the just cause for their war. Kiyoshi had not only fanned the flames, she'd thrown oil onto the blaze. She thought of Yun playing Paisho with Haedon and how he'd predicted the end of their game. How Haedon had all but clasped his hand over the board in agreement If only she could see so far ahead, read a board, and know where the final tiles would fall. But instead, she was walled in from every side. To her, the future was an impenetrable blankness where she'd faltered, injured, and made things worse with every step. Not only was she the loser of the game, it had been a mistake for her to ever play.
2: Shapes of Life and
0: Death By the time they arrived at the palace, Kiyoshi was a shivering wreck. Jinpa collected the shards of her as gently and methodically as she had once picked up messes in the Avatar's mansion. First, a place to store the mess. He brought her to her room and sat her on her bed. Then, he took it upon himself to find Zoryu and let him know the plan hadn't worked. The lack of an angry fire lord beating down her door to demand answers for her failure likely meant that Zoryu had decided to withdraw and collapse, much like Kiyoshi was doing now. There was a set length of wick left to burn before his country set blade and fire against itself, and it was exactly however long it took for Hwazo and Cheijin to walk back from the cliffside to the capital. A day, two- as soon as they met up with their clan, a new bloody chapter of Fire Nation history would begin. Kyoshi wasted a few precious hours of her remaining time before that moment sleeping. A sympathetic future scribe, slicing the records apart to truly understand why the Fire Nation broke out into civil war under Kyoshi's tenure, might declare the Avatar had blacked out from strain and exhaustion. In truth, it was the kind of sleep where she was afraid of tomorrow and what the morning would bring. Tears squeezed out of her shut eyes as she fell into the slumber of weakness. She simply couldn't handle being awake anymore. Dark grayness was her shroud, until Jinpa roused her, shaking her shoulders. Avatar, the Fire Lord is calling for an assembly. I'm barred from going, but you should be there. Wazo and Chajin must have arrived. At least Zodi was using his final peacetime moments to speak to his people, rather than hide away. He'd done better than her in the end. Kiyoshi shambled down the halls of the palace. It felt like she was decaying with each step, flakes of her peeling away to reveal hollowness underneath. She was a layer of dried paint surrounding nothing. She heard an excited titter. A young noble couple rushed past them, paying no heed to the avatar, the woman holding her skirt so it wouldn't drag, her escort trying to plaster over his grin with solemnness. The briefest whisper passed between them. He's done for. They appeared to be heading in the same direction as Kyoshi. As she rounded the corner, the hall filled with more members of the court, murmuring to each other, She filed in behind them, carried along by the tide, until she reached a large room they hadn't been to before. A theater with a stage running along one wall. It must have been built so the royal family could take in plays without having to rub shoulders with the residents of Caldera City, or worse, Harbor City. It was standing room only. Kiyoshi lingered near the back. Like with any performance, there was an agonizing wait until the first actor emerged. The crowd hushed when Zodiu walked out on stage, looking haggard and resigned. A wispy mustache had formed over his upper lip like mold on
1: bread. My friends, he said, it has been a difficult time for our great nation. Instead of peace and abundance, This year's festival of Sito has brought a horrendous attack upon the sanctity of the palace, the bodies of our court, and the Fire Nation's history itself. The ruination of the Fire Avatar Gallery is a grievous wound to my heart. It will never heal.
0: Zodiu was much better at speaking alone from an elevated position than he was at mingling in a crowd where he could be overshadowed by his political foes. The slouch in his shoulders was less pronounced, and there was a
1: flinty look in his eye. I told myself that if I couldn't avenge this slight upon our honor, I had no right to call myself Fire Lord, he said. That much still holds true.
0: His audience ruffled like stalks of wheat in the breeze. This was no mere update. About a quarter of the nobles packed into this room were Sawan. They smirked in delight at their victory. The men and women Kyoshi could identify as Kyoso numbered fewer than half the Sawan. Rage warped their faces to the point she thought their noses would start bleeding. There was no need for flower symbols to tell who belonged to which clan. The nobles who weren't part of one faction or the other in this rivalry were already darting their eyes around, wondering if they'd sufficiently hedged their bets in favor of the Sawan. Little rings of space began forming around the furious Kyoso as people sought more distance from them. Zoryu held his hand up. Let it be known that the spirits of the islands have been watching my reign since its inception, judging my fitness to be Fire Lord. With the attack upon the palace, they put me to the final test. He swept his gaze over the room. And I have passed it. I have found the perpetrator. Bring him out, please. The declaration was so sudden that Kiyoshi chuckled. The perpetrator was Yun, which meant Zoryu found Yun. Zoryu had found Yun? Her laughter iced over in her throat, solidifying into barbs and cutting edges. Two palace guards brought out their blindfolded captive, hunched over from the weight of his iron shackles. Kiyoshi could only see the top of his tousled brown hair as he was made to kneel next to Zoryu. It was happening too fast. The stage felt disjointed in time from the audience and Kiyoshi, as if she were stuck in the same trance as her session with Nyahitha on the mountain. She raised her arm toward Yun and opened her mouth to shout, But Zoryu, working on a faster rhythm, launched into the next stage of his speech. This man has confessed to crimes against the Fire Nation, for which he will be executed, he said. Kiyoshi shouldn't have been so shocked to hear him mention capital punishment. But in a prolonged fit of naivete, she hadn't considered at all that finding Yun would mean delivering him to a death sentence. Zodiou grabbed Yun by the head and tilted his face toward the light in the room. It was a meaningful gesture intended to give the audience a better look, both at the captive and Zodiou's dominance over him. Have you anything to say in your defense, you despicable beast? No. Yun's features were smudged heavily with dirt. He wore the same robes he'd appeared in at the party. I infiltrated the palace. I assaulted the members of the court. I vandalized the royal gallery. I killed Chancellor Dyrin. Yun took a deep breath. And I did it all at the behest of the Salwan clan. A rumble of shock passed through the crowd. He had to shout to be heard over the din. I was paid by Huazo of the Salwan to humiliate Fire Lord Zohyu. I blasphemed by faking signs from the spirits of the islands. I committed foul deeds here and in North Chungling to instigate a war that might put the usurper Jin on the throne. It was a confession to everything Kyoshi thought the Samhwan had conspired to, the exact results she'd been hoping to achieve. The tromping of boots could be heard coming down the hall. Nobles began to shout and shove each other in the crowded room. "'Treason!' Zoryu shouted, stoking the fires of confusion and panic instead of calming his subjects. "'You have heard testimony of treason against the Fire Nation itself. "'All citizens who remain true to our country, regardless of your clan. "'Seize the Salwan criminals, here and now!' "'The Kyoso were the first to act, barely needing a reason. "'They leaped upon their enemies and dragged them to the ground,' A ridiculous-looking scuffle of polished men and silken ladies, flailing away like a drunken rage had suddenly possessed them. This was the brawl of North Chungling, rich, smaller, and better dressed. The grudge of a lowly peasant town, continuing in the rarefied air of the royal palace. Human beings could drape themselves in titles and etiquette, but at their hearts, they were all the same animal. The unaffiliated nobles had a dilemma thrust upon them. Until now, the tides of power had clearly been flowing in one direction. The suddenness of Zohu's declaration asked them to reverse course, to leap from their doomed boats and start swimming upstream. Kiyoshi saw the flashes of calculation run through the rest of the clans faster than lightning. It was gang math. The Sawan really had overstepped their bounds recently, hadn't they? They were the largest family, but their numbers paled in comparison to the rest of the Fire Nation, unified. Fire Nation folk were a decisive people. The rest of the clans found no more upside to being allied with the Sawan. They turned on their neighbors with even greater violence than the Kyoso, pummeling anyone wearing stone camellias into submission with demonstrative zeal needing to make up for lost ground palace guards presumably loyal to zoryu were flooding into the room no one wanted to be caught sympathizing with the traitors zoryu and his prisoner were hustled out the back by guards as soon as the violence started kiyoshi fought her way to the stage slipping by men with bloody faces nearly stepping on a woman crawling along the floor she hoisted herself onto the empty platform and followed down the dark passage Immediately, she crashed into a sharp turn. The stage exit was less a tunnel and more a catacomb, twisting left and right and forking into multiple paths. She lit her way through the maze of wooden walls with fire cradled in her hand and chose her route by listening to the sound of chains rattling. Alone, she was faster than two men dragging a third. She entered a wide straight corridor where an ambush waited. Half a dozen new guards barred her path, already in fighting stances. Yun's captors made haste for another passage at the end of the hall. Kiyoshi sent forth a snaking torrent of wind from one of her palms that blew past the squad of guardsmen and slammed the exit's heavy wooden door shut. Yun was close to the floor and was weighed down by iron shackles, so he was saved from the brunt of it. But one of his captors was thrown into the back wall and knocked out. The other one tried to pull the door open by the bronze ring handle, but she kept up the gale force pressure, and it refused to budge. The rest of the soldiers attacked. They were the royal elite, undoubtedly selected from the best of the best to serve in the palace. But Kiyoshi was the avatar, and she still had a free hand. She advanced down the hall through the storm of fireballs, deflecting them at first to the left and right, and then simply catching them once she gauged just how far her raw bending strength surpassed her opponents she didn't have to outthink here in this confined space or possess better technique she could overwhelm call for reinforcements one of the guards screamed as his mistimed fire jab dissipated ineffectually against Kyoshi's chest but there were only two ways out of the corridor and she controlled them both She flicked a single wrist to counterattack. The dirty secret of airbending Kiyoshi had learned through experience was that it was absolutely devastating in close quarters. Surrounded by hard objects, the gentle art of monks and nuns turned utterly brutal. She sent wind back and forth with rapid changes of direction. The guards were taken by their midsections, flung into spine-rattling collisions with the walls and ceilings. They collapsed into armored heaps. Kiyoshi walked up to the shackled and blindfolded man who'd managed to inch himself into a sitting position. Who are you? She asked. Who are you really? Because I know you're not Yun. He cringed. What do you mean? I'm Yun, the man who attacked the palace, the false avatar. She snatched away the cloth tied over his eyes to reveal golden irises. He was Fire Nation, though he looked very much like the man he was impersonating. He had the same handsome planes to his face as Yun, the same hair, the same build. The similarity was amazing, as brotherly as Zoryu and Cheijin. But Kiyoshi knew he was a fake from the first word he'd said out loud. He'd been coached to sound like Yun, and was good enough to fool the nobles who'd been at the party. But he wasn't good enough to trick someone who'd lived with Yun and heard every emotion his voice could produce, laughter and despair, and maybe even love somewhere in between. Nor was he wounded in the shoulder. Kiyoshi hadn't shared that detail with Zoryu. If she had, the Fire Lord would have undoubtedly burned the man to keep up the ruse. Kiyoshi knelt down and gripped the bindings between his ankles, heating them in her hands. She'd pulled off this metal snapping trick once before, but back in Governor Tay's mansion, she didn't have to worry about scorching someone else. What are you doing? The man yelled. He tried to worm free of her grasp. Stop moving. I'm getting you out of here. I won't let you die for crimes you didn't commit. You can't. Leave me alone. I need this. It took a great deal to distract her so badly that she could feel the pain of burning herself through the numbness of her lightning scars. She hissed and dropped the red-hot iron. You need to die? Yes. My family in Hano, we have nothing. Less than nothing. My debts, the Fire Lord promised me they'd be paid off upon my death. This is the last thing I can do for my wife and children. Shouts echoed and bounced off the walls. Please, the man begged. I was promised a quick and merciful execution. My family will starve if I don't do this. Save me, and you'll be killing them. In his scramble for more arguments to hurl at Kyoshi, the man who was probably a farmer or a fisherman down on his luck resorted to the highest level of politics. The court needs its scapegoat, doesn't it? I understand the situation. I'm not stupid. Letting me die is necessary for the country. He spoke the Fire Lord's argument on Zodu's behalf. It was necessary. Everything was necessary. An innocent man was going to die, and the whole world down to the victim himself was whispering in her ear to stand back and let it happen. Kiyoshi's shriek started low in her stomach and filled her body. It was a sound of pure and total despair. The country would be saved. Her side had won. The guards rounding the corner were thrown back by her cries of anguish, the ghost tearing itself free from her lungs. Yun's imposter, so ready to die, shuddered away from her howls like they were curses. Kiyoshi screamed in the darkness, over and over again, her hatred for the world and herself spiraling into oblivion.
2: House Cleaning
0: She found Zodiu in the war room. A large table had been set amid the dragons. On top were two maps, one of the fire islands, and another of a single landmass resembling a fish's head. Ma Inca. The island looked like the main dish of a banquet, ready to be carved up and served. The Fire Lord himself was alone in the empty hall, no advisors to give him counsel, leaning over the strategy table with outspread hands as the heavy burden of rulership weighed on his shoulders. Kiyoshi wondered why he stayed there, not reacting to her entrance, until she realized there was one other person in the corner of the room. An artist making a sketch, scribbling diligently on a small canvas. Zodi wanted to capture the most pivotal moment of his reign for posterity. The pose was too informal for his entry into the royal gallery. This was meant to be a more intimate masterpiece, something to show his grandchildren and their grandchildren. No glory and victory for one as wise as Zoryu, only the pain and burden of leadership. Leave, Kiyoshi said to the artist. The young woman tucked her sketch under her arm and started for the door before remembering to wait for her fire lord's permission. Zoryu waved her away. Before today, she would have walked straight out of this room without a second glance at me he said to kiyoshi once they were alone i'm making progress so he was where did you find the double trade secrets of the royalty he said master Genju and yun themselves advised me on how to restart the program back before i knew you existed they advocated the usefulness of having a decoy for yun apparently The practice is good for making speeches and foiling assassins. Zodiu chuckled to himself at the irony. People aren't as unique as they believe themselves to be. And the Fire Nation is a populous country. You should check with the Earth King. You'd be surprised who he has copies of lying around. He eyed her up and down. I don't think anyone could find your like. So worry not. There will only ever be one Avatar Kiyoshi. It might have been one too many. What will happen to the Sal one? I will round up and arrest the ones here in the capital. The other clans will do the same across their home islands on behalf of the Fire Lord. And then I'll have them killed. Without pausing to consider the weight of what he said, he gestured at the map on the table. As for my Inca itself, I believe the Sawan there will retreat to their mountain forts, at which point there'll be a lengthy siege. Sieges are always
1: unpleasant affairs, but they don't have to be bloody. With the rest of the country's noble houses united behind me, I'll be able to starve the Sawan out.
0: Or to death. An entire clan of the Fire Nation wiped off the face of the earth, as simple as that. He walked out from around the table and wrapped it once with his knuckles. It's better than what would have happened otherwise. By my best guess, three-fifths of the clans would have joined the Sawan and turned on me, had things continued the way they were headed. It would have been open war across the entire Fire Nation. Instead of resigning to a grinding conflict of attrition, Zoryu had isolated his enemies branded them as criminals, and trapped them on a single island. He'd played his tiles masterfully. But there was still a critical flaw in his operation. If the real Yun shows up again, your ruse will be exposed, she said. Everything would fall apart. Oh, I know.
1: The Fire Nation would tear itself apart in the chaos and confusion. All I've really done is buy you more time to find him.
0: The first time Zodiyu had explained to her the precipice the Fire Nation balanced on, it had been a cry for help. Now, repeated here, it was an ultimatum. You're not done assisting me, Kyoshi, he said softly. You don't want my nation to suffer any more than I do. You and I are still in this together. A ruler holding his own country hostage. She had been so worried about turning into Genju as if the Earth Sage had been a special breed of monster threatening to be reborn through her and only her. How laughable a notion! The fact of the matter was, the world grew Genju's by the bushel. They sprouted from the soil and multiplied from the seas. People sought to emulate Genju with every fiber of their being. Kiyoshi had forgotten her Daofei oaths. Becoming the lackey of a crown was a violation punishable by many knives. For bending to Zoryu's will, she would be ripped apart by thunderbolts. The best she could do in her defeat was to save as many lives as possible. I want clemency for the Sawan if I'm to help you. Why should I give it?
1: Even if they weren't collaborating with Yun, they were undermining my authority. Do you think if they succeeded in taking the throne, Cha Jin would have sent
0: me gently into exile? Kiyoshi thought of a phrase her friend Wong had told her back in her flying opera company days. A fight is over only when the winner says it's over. She had to make sure Zoryu didn't commit an atrocity in celebration of his victory. Punish them in accordance for their tricks, but not for an act of treason they didn't commit. There will be no wholesale massacre. I'll look weak. Good thing you're a savvy politician, capable of crafting his image into whatever suits his needs. He narrowed his eyes at her. As long as you're asking for the impossible, do you have any more demands? I do. Yun's decoy. I want him sent home alive and rewarded for his troubles. Zoryu swelled with resistance. This was a bigger issue for him than the fate of his rivals. No. I have to hold an execution. I need a body, or else the honor of the entire Fire Nation goes unsatisfied. I've heard the stories about you, Kiyoshi, and I know the things you've seen. What do you care if a single peasant lives or dies? She crossed the distance between them and thrust a closed fan under his chin, stopping short of his throat. I care more for his life than I do for yours right now, she said, examining the growing whites of Zoryu's eyes. Let me make myself perfectly clear. You live on top of what I control. Your islands are surrounded by my waves. You fill your very lungs at my discretion. So if I hear any news about Yun being executed, you will truly learn what it's like when the spirits forsake you in the face of the elements. Zodiyu cowered before her sudden onslaught. They always did. For a brief moment, the Fire Lord knew what it was like to be truly helpless. But unlike so many Daofei and triads before him, he found the strength of his title at his back. He was the ruler of the Fire Nation, and Kiyoshi was the avatar. She had her own image, as poor as it was, to think about. Slowly but surely, Zoyu grinned at her bluff. He did her the favor of not saying out loud how badly she'd overplayed her situation. Instead, he took on an air of pity. Let me give you a bit of advice for when you next see Yun, he said. I've thought a great deal about this ever since he first showed up. And I think I know why you've been having so much trouble against him. You don't understand his feelings. She pressed the fan deeper into the underside of Zodiu's jaw, but he didn't flinch. Yun hates us, Zodiu said. Everything he's done so far- it's because he hates us. You, me, the lieutenant. That's not true, Kyoshi snarled. We were his friends. He's been acting out of vengeance. He said so. Zoryu shook his head. I don't think
1: he realizes it himself. Consider his deeds, Kyoshi, not his words. Who has he been causing the
0: most pain? For starters, me. By my reckoning, he's angry with me for daring to rule my country without his help. He's also furious with the lieutenant for having her mother's unconditional love. What Genju gave him wasn't anything of the sort. And then there's you, Kyoshi. And then there was her. Yun has never been able to let go of the fact that he's not the avatar, Zoryu said. To this day, he agonizes over what should have been. He grieves for his lost destiny, and that grief has turned into blame. He nudged the fan aside, expecting her to lose control of her emotions any second. Jenju and the others might have lied about his avatarhood, Kiyoshi. But only one person truly stole it from him. You. Seeing he'd rendered her incapable of response, he sidestepped out of her grasp and went back to his map table. He's punishing us, Kiyoshi, for moving on from him and having the things he doesn't and unless you accept the truth, sooner or later, he is going to punish you in a way I can't even imagine. Kiyoshi swallowed the buildup in her throat. She had no way of disproving any of Zodu's insights, other than her own stubborn faith that she knew Yun better. I suppose you can tell all this because you played him in Paisho, she said hoarsely. no, I can tell, because I'm not blinded by the past, like the two of you are. Maybe he truly is possessed by a spirit. It doesn't change what needs to be done. He waved at the door. Now please leave me. You have work to do, and I have the
2: future of my country to plan.
0: Second Chances Kiyoshi needed to arrange some travel for herself. She couldn't bear having to explain another half-baked plan to Jinpa, nor did she want him present when she carried it out. So she went to a palace minister with her request for a ship and kept the whole arrangement from her secretary. The next morning, upon learning a vessel waited for her at the harbor, she left the palace by herself. Guards opened the many doors and gates without her needing to ask or even break stride. It made her feel like a farm animal being guided out of its pen. She got into a carriage which took her through Caldera City, down the volcano slope, and through Harbor City. News of the Sawan's heinous acts had spread overnight through the capital, and the streets were mostly empty the festival of Sito abandoned mid-swing in the face of such treachery. Parade floats remained inside alleys, covered in tarps. Lanterns bobbed in the breeze, unlit. Kiyoshi nearly marveled at the speed of court rumors, before realizing Zoryu had probably spread the information throughout the island himself. Like most of the major clans, the Sawan would have had a normal, everyday presence in the capital, Businesses and family homes. That was no longer the case. Primed to look for them, Kiyoshi saw signs everywhere of a swift, efficient purge. A lone shop in a commerce street might be closed and dark while its neighbors were still open. A luxurious apartment, most certainly belonging to a noble, had no clan banner on its flagpole. Wisps of black smoke rose in the distance, Clustered too near each other to be a coincidence. She had to fight to keep the sourness in her stomach down. Better than open war was not a standard to live by. And yet, people seemed content with it. She reached the docks and found her ship. It was a well-made sloop with a deep keel, a speedy ocean traveler with no need to hug coasts and rivers like squat Earth Kingdom transports but she winced when she saw the name on the side. Sulan's smile. The late Lord Chedu might have commissioned it for his wife's personal use before the two of them passed. It looked barely used. Kiyoshi decided Hwazo had the right measure of it. Zoryu's mother had no blame in recent events, or at least the same amount of blame as everyone else in this whole affair. Kiyoshi boarded the boat, and did her best to ignore the neighboring cargo hauler, having its stone camellia decorations scraped off by a team of fire navy sailors. Red paint falling in flakes to the water's surface, like clotted blood. The crew of Sulan's smile left her alone as they sailed in the direction she'd ordered. As she stood on the deck, she could feel the water dragging on the hull like fingers, gripping the vessel slowing it down more than the thin air ever did to ying-yong or pung-pung. Compared to flying, every method of travel was a slog. She supposed she could have tried to speed them along with bending, but she'd heard it was possible to damage and capsize a vessel that way if the waterbender didn't know what they were doing. They came to the dark patch below the waves she was looking for. Kiyoshi ordered the ship to drop anchor. Captain Junho, a man with whiskers like spruce needles, stood at the head of his crew of hardy, weather-beaten sailors, waiting for her next command. Stay here until I return, Kiyoshi told him. Do not try to come after me, no matter what happens.
1: I don't understand, Avatar, Junho said. Return from where? There's nothing here. Kiyoshi hoisted
0: herself onto the railing of the ship. There used to be. She plunged into the water. She could hear shouting from above the surface. Some of the men might have been inclined to dive in and rescue her, but her orders had been clear. They would have had difficulty catching her anyway. Kiyoshi had worn her full complement of armor so she could sink faster. She kicked downward, swimming for the ruins of Yang Chen's island. As before, It took her an embarrassingly long time for her to remember she was a waterbender. With a flap of her arms, she surged faster than an elephant koi. Her sight became blackness. The only reminder she was swimming through water was the burning of her lungs as she ran out of air. She fought through the knives in her chest to keep going, but her bravery bought her only a few more kicks. Her mouth opened, and she swallowed to fullness. A cloud of bubbles escaped her throat before the seawater rushed into her body, violating every space she had left. She was drowning. She'd come here with a crew of strangers because none of her companions would have let her take this risk. Kiyoshi fought for as long as she could, wanting to bring her consciousness to the very edge. With her last reserves of thought, She sent out her message. Kurok, get out here now before I die, or I will cross over to the other side and come after you there.
2: Kid, you can open your eyes.
0: Kiyoshi blinked awake. It was warm and bright. The scent of grass tickled her nose. She was sitting in a green field that rolled gently into the distance. On one side of the horizon was a row of trees that looked placed by hand, applied to the top of the hills, like Kiyoshi's eyebrow liner when she wore her makeup. Opposite the forest was a tall peak jutting high into the air after a few false starts. Lines of clouds converged to a point behind it as if the mountain were a sun emitting beams of light. Her predecessor in the Avatar cycle was dressed more casually than the one time he'd fully appeared before her. Kurok was without his furs and wore only a light blue water tribe summer tunic. His arms and neck were still adorned with the sharp teeth and claws of beasts strung through by leather thongs. He made a crooked little half-smile that tugged one side of his face higher. I've been trying to get a hold of you for the longest time, but I needed your help to do it. An avatar talking to their past lives requires true willingness from both ends his message to her in the Southern Air Temple. Need your help. He hadn't been asking for a favor from beyond the grave. He needed her help in order to communicate properly. Of all the stupid, unclear ways for him to put it, what did you want to talk about?
1: The same thing as you.
0: Your boy. Him and Father Glowworm. I can guide you to what you seek. It's why you're here now, isn't it? So she hadn't been wrong in going to North Chungling to get Kurok's help. Congratulations to her. Vindication felt about as good as drowning. She should have just kept her mouth shut and taken whatever assistance Kurok was offering. But there was an unsettling calmness to their conversation. It was happening in complete silence. Something was off. This is the spirit world, isn't it? She asked.
2: Where are the spirits? The two
0: of them were the only beings sitting in the vast field. Kiyoshi had little to base her expectations on, but unless the plants and rocks themselves were alive- this place was as devoid of life as the dried patches of the Siwong Desert. Kuruk winced. Most spirits tend to give me a
2: wide berth. Why? He
0: didn't want to say. But he was talking to himself. Lying was pointless. Because I used to hunt them. Kiyoshi rubbed her face, feeling the cracks and lines with her fingers. Lao Go had mentioned it once. Kurok, the greatest hunter that ever walked the four nations. The trophies that had decorated his body the first time he manifested before her in his full regalia. If slaying beasts in the physical world no longer posed a challenge, then it wasn't so far-fetched that a reckless, thrill-seeking adventurer like Kurok would turn his eye toward spirits. Being the avatar would have given him the means. You, she said. It was hard to speak through the grin ripping her mouth apart, and difficult to see through the tears streaming down her face. You are something else. Letting her feelings run loose was like putting boiled herbs to a burn. It was necessary and painful. And it had been postponed long enough. Kurok swallowed, unable to meet her gaze. It's not what you think. Yang Chen Don't you dare Kyoshi giggled. Her tears flew down her own throat as she gasped. Don't you dare bring her into this. You're not worthy of her legacy. Your name belongs in the gutter with mine. Here she was, in the middle of the most sacred act an avatar could perform. Except she was Kyoshi, and Kurok was Kurok. Had there ever been a worse duo in history? Disaster followed by catastrophe? The hilarity of her situation snuffed itself out like a candle with a glass placed over it. A dead, airless feeling followed.
2: This isn't fair, she said.
0: None of this is fair. The earth around her began to ripple. She heard a flitting, flipping sound, like the pages of a thick book being swiped. Starting from the horizon, a crack in the grass began to zigzag and spiderweb toward them. Pieces of the terrain itself started falling into the rift, making it clear that she and Kurok stood not on solid ground, but a fragile, thin surface. This wasn't bending. It was a reflection of the wounds she'd suffered. Here in the spirit world, her pain had substance. I hate you, she screamed at Kurok. The tear in the ground revealed a shade of color underneath that Kiyoshi could not explain in the language of the four nations. It was the tint of the abyss, the background swirl of chaos. If she fell into it, there would be no coming back. You had everything handed to you. Yang Chen gave her legacy to you, and you squandered it. You left me a world full of nothing but suffering and misery. The collapse picked up speed, racing toward her and her past life, threatening to drop them both into a twisted new existence. The landslide consumed the trees, the grass, the sky, abrading reality, shrinking her mind. Nothingness in an onrushing wave. Karuk gazed at the annihilation coming for them both. And in response, he gave her a look of complete surrender. You have every right, he said gently. At the very last second, the crumbling halted at the edge of their feet. Did she? No, she thought. She didn't. She didn't have the right to lose herself in her rage and let it take her to oblivion. No matter what she'd been through, she wouldn't allow herself to become a human scar, a compendium of personal loss. She had the obligation to be more than the sum of her grievances with the world. Gradually, shard by shard, the surfaces and planes of the spirit world floated back into place raised from the chasm they had fallen into, affixing themselves to each other like a plate being mended with gilded lacquer. Whether it was her doing or the work of forces beyond her control, she wasn't sure. Either way, it was slow going. Rebuilding always took longer than destruction. Cleaning a mess more time than making it. Kuruk watched the landscape repair itself, Neutrality still lingering in his expression, despite the fact he'd nearly taken a plunge into the terrifying beyond with Kiyoshi. You came here for answers, he said to her, holding out his hand. I have to show you something. Don't touch me, she smacked his hand away. In the moment they made contact, it occurred to Kiyoshi she wasn't wearing her gauntlets in the spirit world. Her hands were bare, and the red scars of lightning were nowhere to be seen, as if her memories of herself hadn't incorporated the damage to her skin. No one had explained to her what would happen if her form touched Kuruks in the spirit world. There was a flash of light in her head, and when it subsided, Kiyoshi found herself imprisoned once again in the unbreakable cage of memory. Lost Friends Kurok opened his eyes. He was no longer in Yang Chen's meadow near Yao Ping, facing Kelsung under the starry sky. He realized the source of his air nomad friend's conflict with his elders when it came to what the spirit world looked like. The realm beyond the physical was different things to different people, at different times. The avatar was alone, his friend nowhere to be found in the hissing gray swampland. They'd lost each other somewhere in the journey. The water around Kuruk slithered with, not life, but something akin to it, and all the more unsettling for the closeness. A scream and the beating of a drum were all he could hear, incessant, hysterical. And only when he braved the foul water and flailed his way to a solid shore did he find the source. A spirit. Not one of Kelsong's playful creatures, but a monstrosity the size of a house, gripping the ground with arms like spider limbs and bashing its featureless head against the earth over and over again, causing itself horrible pain, but never ceasing its assault, nor its shriek that came from no discernible mouth. Before he could swallow her horror and try to speak to it, a long tail wrapped around his neck and hoisted him into the air. Their forms were crushed together, revulsion seeped through his skin a feeling of being tied to a corpse the creature hurled him to the ground and he bounced like stuffed rags blacking out from a pain to his ethereal form that did its best to mimic the physical before he lost consciousness he caught a glimpse of what the spirit was attacking so ferociously with its skull it was a pond of ice the reflection on the silvery sheen was a hillside view of Yaoping town. Kuruk woke up with a gasp. Kelsong was still sitting across from him, his eyes closed, murmuring pleasantries like he was attending a tea ceremony. Kuruk got up, ignored the looks of surprise on Haydon's and Genju's faces, and stole his friend's glider. He rode his own furious squall of airbending to Yaoping. There was no time to explain to the others what he knew in his heart. That monstrous spirit had found a crack between the spirit world and the world of humans. If it broke through, it was going to slaughter everyone it came across. There was only one place where someone could see the town from above, like Kurok had, and that was the entrance to the salt mines in the neighboring mountain. He landed the glider and stood before the hole in the world, the gaping maw of darkness. He summoned his courage and ran inside. Better to cross through the rift and go on the attack in the spirit world. He would have his bending that way. Kelsung had said so. He found the enraged spirit and began to fight it. He didn't know how long the battle raged, He only knew with grim certainty that the right avatar had been chosen for this task. This foe was a beast, and he was a hunter. A hunter struck fast and true and was merciful to their prey. A hunter approached their duty with solemn respect. It took bringing all four elements to bear against the maddened spirit to bring it down. But bring it down he did. He was victorious. The town was saved. All would be well. The next morning, his friends found the avatar crawling blindly through the streets of Yaoping, foaming at the mouth. It was days before he could speak. Destroying the spirit had cost him a piece of his own somehow. He was bleeding inside, losing something more vital than blood, vitality leeching away in a manner no healer could fix he was cold him a child of the north who laughed at blizzards and swam laps around icebergs was cold nothing pumped through his veins he tried to tell Kelsung, Genju, and hayran what happened and could not the words stuck in his throat he made up a story about a mischievous spirit tricking him into losing his faculties for a moment, like what happened to wandering children in ominous folk tales. His friends left him to rest in the bed of an inn. They looked for a doctor. The doctor came by, said there was nothing wrong with his body, and told him to rest. He wanted to die. One day, when everyone else was out, a friendly maid came by and gave him some distilled wine in defiance of the doctor's orders. It burned his throat going down, the first sensation in days that cut through the chill. He drank more and more, feeling the liquid press against the wound inside him like a red-hot iron to a severed limb. When the maid smiled and gently laid a hand upon his chest, The avatar clasped it like he was drowning. He couldn't remember the woman's face, but he remembered those of his friends when they happened upon the tangle of limbs poking out from under the covers and the broken bottles littering the floor. Kelsong didn't judge. Genju didn't care being of the opinion that if the avatar had a certain desire, the avatar should slake it. Karuk would only understand the difference in their reactions later in his life. And Haydon, though she would never admit it, lost a great deal of respect for him in that moment. The door to the firebender's heart, while not locked forever, had been firmly shut there was always going to be a portion of her closed off to those who couldn't master themselves. But they bounced back. Their adventures went on. The Avatar's friends were remarkable. He loved them so much. He loved their intelligence, their aspirations, their sheer nobility. They were simply good people. There was so much good this group could do for the world. That was why, when the second spirit attack came, he went to face it alone again. His friends would insist on helping if they knew, but he would never, ever make them suffer what he had, not in a thousand lifetimes. They would be tainted by association with the deed he had to do. A bad dream during a visit to the Fire Nation showed him a rift in a cenote supplying sacred water to a corner of Ma'Inca Island. He ran to the cavern in the middle of the night and dove into the water, defiling it. Instead of dashing his head against the stone bottom, he swam and swam straight down until he found the mass of writhing beaks snapping and licking their way to the surface. He stabbed with ice and he stabbed with stone. His eyes closed, the screams of terror his own. His former hunting partners of his youth would have scorned him for not performing a clean kill. He could not look upon the dying thing. Once the deed was done, Kuruk dragged himself over the lip of the cenote, weeping water onto the ledge. The cold emptiness inside him had returned in force. He crawled like a baby until he reached the feet of a man who stared down at him in puzzlement and distaste. The man was a fire national from a clan or tribe he didn't recognize, his name was nyahitha he said and after receiving a premonition the elders of the banti had sent him here to give aid to the avatar it was clear he had trouble believing this bedraggled mess was great yang chen's successor nyahitha hauled kuruk to a campsite in the jungle and performed some kind of diagnostic ritual guiding heat along his energy pathways similar to the way a northern healer would use the water within a patient's body. He confirmed what Kuruk had already guessed, that coming into contact with these dark creatures and destroying them was causing damage to his own spirit. Nyahitha repaired what he could, but admitted a permanent toll would be taken each time another of these battles was fought. Already? Kurok was going to be out of the running for longest era in the Avatar history books. Such terrible bedside manner for a doctor, Kurok joked. Couldn't he have broken the news a little more gently? Then he threw up blood all over the fire sage's robes. Nyahitha's dire warnings cemented Kurok's decision not to tell his companions about the spirit incursions. They would follow him into any danger and give their lives to protect his. Staining the vibrant spirits of Hayran and Kelsang and Genju with this sickness would be a tragedy too horrible to consider. He was not going to see that happen, not even if it meant his own oblivion. He began to take breaks from his missions with them to do research with Nyahitha. They visited the hidden library of the Banti, a contender for the greatest repository of spiritual knowledge in the physical realm. Together, under the peaked roofs of the stone pagodas, they pored over scrolls and tomes older than the four nations themselves. They deduced that the spirits were trying to force their way through newly created cracks in the boundary between the spirit world and the lands of humans. They did not know why or how these cracks were forming all of a sudden. Normally, places where spirits could cross over were ancient and sacred and rare. Special circumstances like the twilights of hallowed dates were required. That didn't seem to be the case anymore. They also searched for a better technique to subdue their foes, but found none. Perhaps it had yet to be invented. Kuruk shuddered as he closed the last promising book in the Bonte library without finding salvation. As more attacks came, he realized he could stalk the dark creatures across the spirit world itself, sometimes following the wake of great disturbances and storms across the ever-changing landscape, and sometimes relying on his own preternatural tracking skills his ability to cut sign from sheer ice and bare rock, and the smallest out-of-place blade of grass. On such excursions, he always had to pass through a rift from the physical world to the spiritual, taking on his quarry with his physical body. Without his bending, he stood no chance, and it made more sense to fight on the spirit world side of the border, to minimize collateral damage to humans. And so he hunted. He walked the realm beyond the physical, searching for spirits with murderous intent, trying to force their way into a human population. Each time he found one, Kuruk tried his best to placate the being's anger at the cost of his blood and sweat and bones. Nothing worked. To save lives, he had to fight he had to kill. He and Nyahitha told no one what they did. They were like people graduating from petty theft to organized crime in too deep to ever extricate themselves. By the time they reached a certain number of hunts, layfolk would have shunned them for the spirits they'd destroyed, let alone the Bonte or the air nomads. The world went on it had competent people looking after it. Kurok never one for meetings where the quickest minds were forced to adopt the pace of the slowest, began to sleep through them, exhausted by the lingering pain and the wine he drank to dull it. Genju would inevitably work things out with the diplomats and ministers and ambassadors by the time he woke up. His nights were spent carousing at parties, in taverns, at contests of bending prowess, trying to feel as human as possible with as many different humans as possible. He secretly hoped Nyahitha would find a sacred text declaring the official treatment for his symptoms was to be close to life, joy, and the touch of warm bodies. But no. The hedonism of his self-prescribed healing process was his own weakness showing through. Nothing else. Nyahitha partook in the treatment as well, surprising Kiyoshi with his indulgences. The formerly austere sage pursued excess with the immoderation of a man denied. Kuruk barely noticed his friends splitting apart. The treasures of his life scattered over the four nations to pursue their own paths. They'd all come to the same conclusion. They were accomplishing nothing of worth in the Avatar's company. It felt like one day he was playing his daily game of paisha with Genju, and the next he was reading Genju's letter of admonishment for not attending Hairan's wedding. Hairan. Kurok had been out of his mind with grief when he showed up at Kelsong's with that poem. A spirit had tried to break through the day before, and his pent-up fury at himself for lying to Hadon by omission about so many different things for all these years exploded. He had annihilated the creature with the full power of the Avatar state, an unworthy act no matter the circumstances. The poem was a feeble attempt to turn back time, to a point where he wasn't such a miserable failure who abused Yang Chen's gifts, an age where he was still within reach of deserving Heidon's love. He channeled his sorrow into more research with Nyahitha, longer expeditions into the spirit world. He finally discovered how the tunnels to the physical realm were being created, his knowledge of beasts coming to the forefront once again. Animals often took over structures created by other animals, like how jaguar beetles would live in the vast complex mounds of angler termites after the original residents moved on to form other colonies. The cracks in reality were being created by a single spirit. Kurok switched his focus to pinpointing the origins of the tunnels instead of the spirits trying to use them. Circling closer and closer to the source, until he encountered Father Glowworm, the world borer, it within the hole. Finally, he'd found a spirit that would talk to the Avatar. He learned Father Glowworm had the power to rasp away at the barrier between the physical and spiritual worlds leaking wisps of its essence through the cracks it made to bask in the warmth and chaos of the mortal realm at his pleasure. Did it take the occasional human here and there? Yes, but what hunter didn't snatch up choice prey when the opportunity presented itself?